This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We have a very special episode. Like I mentioned at the start of last week's episode, a very historic episode of Giant Robot FM. We are splitting our history coverage of Gundam The Origin into three distinct episodes, covering basically three facets or three different artistic time periods in Yasuhiko's life. Um, We've talked about his early days and his early to mid-career in the first episode, covering his work as an animator, his work as a film director, and plenty of stuff in between. And that basically brought us to the new millennium, the year 2000. And now we are covering the manga and the creation of the manga and also our takes on the manga as we have finished the 12 volumes. So with me today, of course, I have PMC. I'm not in the studio today. We are recording digitally, uh, virtually, if you will. Uh, PMC, say something to the good folks out there. We're all in different space colonies, and we'll never meet up again. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and that laugh is, yes, Megan D is back with us today. She she will become the... Our most halved on guest. I'm trying to give a word for that, but we'll have she will have made the most giant robot FM appearances soon enough, and that record probably won't be broken anytime soon. But she is slated for a lot of Gundam origin coverage, and we couldn't be happier to have her on. Happy to be back. I am rested and ready to talk more about this series. <laughs> uh, so, Megan, if for any some reason listeners out there did not listen to episode one or three plus hour. Um, deep dive into Yasuhiko's early career, definitely make sure you stop this rec- uh, listening right now and give it a listen um, because it's it's we're going to be building on that information that is a foundational base that we'll be working off of today. But also, for some reason, again, if you have not listened to that first episode, you may not know who Megan D is. I hope you do, but in case you don't, Megan, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, I have been doing my manga blog, the manga test drive, for 10 years now, as of this month. I also have a side blog, Renaissance Jose, where I do longer form pieces, uh, mostly on anime and manga. Uh, I am an occasional, I do occasional appearances at Anime Feminist, where I've done both articles and podcasts. And you can find me on Twitter, giving all sorts of takes, at Brainchild129. Yeah, you said, you had some tweets pop off recently. Like, oh, well done. Well well done, or I apologize for, like, the, the internet you know, falling on your doorstep. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that Morbius joke one. I, I don't know what the hell happened. Oh, man, that phenomenon that was Morbius on the internet really came and went. Just like Morbius. <laughs> I'm trying to think of an effective transition from Morbius to... Gundam the origin PMC you're 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 decent with stuff like this give me a you have a good pun a good connective tissue there I you know I don't know if I can really really wring any more blood from that one I, it's it's difficult for me I don't know what is Morbius's superpower does he travel just a vampire portals? isn't he vampirism vampire? yeah yeah it's just a vampire all right yeah I have nothing I was thinking I got Doctor Strange on the brain so even though I haven't seen the film I was thinking Wrong going from Marvel one portal movie. to another yeah I know 
All right, are you are you two ready to jump into the manga? I apologize for not having an elegant segue. There. I'm ready to turn the page. Let's do <laughs> nice. this. Real quick, Megan, can you believe it? This manga, this 12-volume manga, is PMC's introduction to the medium of manga, the format itself. Yeah. I, wow. I, I, I mean, okay, uh, let's just be clear here. Yes, I did know to read from right to left. Don't worry. Um <laughs> But in terms of like reading anything at length, like I, I've picked up fragments of things. Um, I think I read a few pages of Armored Core Tower City Blade and a scanlation. I was Sorry. gonna say the hell. Sorry, I turned it to video games again. I apologize. <laughs> but, <laughs> Everybody uh, this take one's a appropriate break. because he is an Armored Core speedrunner. Yeah, I mean I am familiar with the with the series, but yeah, no. But in terms of reading anything, you know, reading a whole, whole, whole. Uh, volumes this is the first time i i've done that so it was, and it was good it was good origin was good i would i would read more manga excellent now let's get just reading one piece <laughs> you're, starting out, <laughs> you're starting out a real high no pmc i'll tell you that right now yeah i hate to tell you gundam manga in english more or less is kind of downhill from here Especially if you borrowed from me, so I'm looking at my library. I was gonna me. say, then, Stephen, are you gonna? Are oh you no! Gonna... Do you have nothing but those junky old Tokyo Pop books about Gundam I Wing? I do. Yeah, the ones that look it, like it, scanlations. I do. If I was close enough to my uh, my library, I'd pick them out and show you on the camera. But um, in preparation for our past Endless Waltz ep- history episode, I read through the three volumes of G Unit, Battlefield of Pacifist, and one more, and I cannot remember. I think Ground Zero, Episode Zero, was the one. Um, ah, interesting. I'll say delete. All three were very interesting. I don't know. I read Battlefield of Pacifist recently. I found it really boring. Do you remember the shirt that the old guy? What's the old guy's name? Who's the um, Howard? Yeah, they refer oh, to yeah. him on um, certain Gundam like communities as Weed Grandpa. <laughs> I mean, he his spaceship is the Peace Million, so I think that fits. <laughs> but he's wearing this wild. I have to take a. Screenshot it someday, but a wild shirt in that manga. But we're not here to talk about shitty Gundam Wing manga. We're here to talk about good UC manga. <laughs> Very good. All right, that will be my transition. So, after the nightmarish production of Arion and the tepid response it got from fans, Yasuhiko's relationship with Sunrise soured. He wasn't exactly persona non grata, but after the financial failures of Giant Gorg, which came out in 1984, and Arion, which came out in 1986, studio executives were not keen on giving him the reins of another project. And I think the feeling was mutual based on many Yasuhiku interviews I read. It seemed like he was pretty burnt out from the animation experience as a whole. Would you agree with that, Megan? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, based on the production, uh, the typical production cycles on these films, I really cannot blame him. Now, keep in mind, I said that his relationship with Sunrise soured, um... But Yasuhiko, like we mentioned last time, did work on Gundam F91 in the early 90s. Again, that was in a limited capacity and not from a position of creative power. That film went through a lot of transformations in the pre-production cycle. It was originally supposed to be a television show. And if it had been a television show, who knows, maybe Yasuhiko would have had um, more of a creative role on it. Again, maybe not because he was doing his own manga at the time. Yeah, that, that's something for another day in another podcast. Yeah. However, time heals most wounds, and the bad blood that existed between Sunrise and Yasuhiko eventually dissipated. As the 90s came to a close, Yasuhiko was fielding more calls from and taking more meetings with interested parties at Sunrise, eager to work with him again. In particular, 
Takayuki Yoshi, who was president of Sunrise from 1994 to 2008, pressed Yasuhiko to return to the world of Gundam. Um, as Yasuhiko puts it in interviews, basically, Yoshi just kept calling him and pestering him, like, please come back to Gundam. Hey, what about that Gundam? And eventually, <laughs> eventually it sounded like, you know, Yasuhiko was like, fine, 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 fine. Um, this is not very surprising, though, from a... I guess, corporate position. Because in Japan, not unlike Star Wars in the United States, enthusiasm for the Universal Century, the Universal Century in particular, first Gundam I'm talking about here, is perennial. Um, The fandom just cannot get enough of that conflict that spanned 365 days. As Sunrise executives at the time prepared to celebrate Gundam's 20th anniversary in the late 90s, they were eager to capitalize on that nostalgia especially if it would distract from recent commercial disappointments such as Gundam X and Turn A Gundam. You know, despite the fact that Turn A Gundam is a critical darling then and now, it did not do well ratings rise. Am I correct in that, Megan? Yes, and the Gunpla for it did not sell very well. It still did better than Gundam X, at least, because it ran its full 50 episodes, whereas Gundam X holds the record as being the only other Gundam series to be cancelled. Oh, that's such a shame because those Sid Mead designs rock. And I, I know, of course, other mechanical designers worked on Turn A Gundam. I love the designs, and I haven't even seen the show. I love Mustache Gundam. <laughs> no doubt Yoshi and other like-minded executives wanted to bring Yasuhiko back into the fold for that reason. Now, it took some convincing. He refused their initial offers. He told them, quote, I'm making my living as a manga artist now, and there are tons of things I want to draw in the future, end quote. So he's basically saying, I'm doing my own thing, not interested in returning to Gundam, no thank you, and goodbye. And he escorted those Sunrise executives off his property. However, eventually, Yasuhiku reached an agreement with Sunrise, and this happened around May 2000. In effect, they met in the middle. Yasuhiku was not returning to the world of animation, he would instead be retelling and reimagining the events of First Gundam in a serialized manga format. While this was Yas's preferred medium, there was also a business imperative to this decision. So keep in mind, when Yasuhiko finally said, yes, I will do Gundam, it was May 2000, probably around the same time that PMC and I were really getting into anime. And there's a reason for that, because two months earlier, on March 6th, 2000, Gundam Wing premiered on Toonami. And its popularity exploded soon after. Wing became a minor phenomenon and a gateway into anime for so many impressionable young American fans, myself and I think PMC included. And Sunrise wanted to capitalize on this groundswell of interest from American fans by finally bringing Gundam to an international market. Now, despite the fact that 0079 would air on Toonami the next year, Sunrise was not confident the original show would capture the hearts, minds, or attention spans of American fans. They felt it was, quote, just too old, end quote. And their predictions proved to be correct, as the show received poor ratings, found itself preemptive, preempted for a number of weeks after the events of 9-11, and was quietly canceled before completing its full run. Now, instead, they hoped that a related manga retelling would act as a bridgehead into the growing U.S. manga market. Now, I want to ask you a question here, Megan. Actually, no, real quick, before we get to that, Megan, you had excellent, like, background information about the previous manga adaptations of First Gundam. So I want to give you an opportunity, because there's a lot of fascinating information here. 
Yes, because Gundam The Origin was not the first time that a mangaka had attempted to retell the story of first Gundam in manga form. Uh, the first one actually dates back to around the time of the show itself, starting in 1979. Uh, it ran for two volumes in the shonen magazine Boken O, and it was created by Yu Okazaki, who is not a particularly well-known mangaka outside of Japan. The most notable thing he ever did is that he worked at many, for many years as an assistant at Dynamic Productions. He was an assistant for Gonagai on a number of his works in the 70s. But that version's never been released outside of Japan. I've tried looking up information on this adaptation. I found basically nothing, just a few scans here and there. Oh, yeah. I hadn't noticed it in the ANN Encyclopedia. I probably wouldn't know about it. Same. Uh, I wish. I'm actually surprised no one has tried to procure the copies and release scanlations online, just because that seems to be very popular nowadays of people going back, translating old material, particularly old Gundam material. And it might have to do partially with its age and partially with the fact that, from what I can tell, this was a shonen magazine aimed at younger kids, and mm. the manga like that tend to be kind of condensed and not always that great. But anyway. So the second attempt at retelling Gundam was made in the mid-1990s. This version was called Mobile Suit Gundam 0079. Uh, it ran for 12 volumes in the shonen magazine Dengeki Daio, and it was created by someone who is not necessarily a popular name, but he is known within the Gundam fandom, a guy named Kazuhisa Kondo. Now, Kondo has a long history with the Gundam franchise, as he's created all sorts of these very gritty, military-minded spin-off manga over the years, since the 80s, I believe. And he's also well-known for his unique mobile suit designs. He draws them very heavy, stocky, uh, usually with uh, big, big long skirts. That's kind of a signature of his. And he's kind of more into stories about ordinary soldiers fighting on Earth. Like, he loves things like tank camo. He, he's that kind of military otaku. Unfortunately... Have you, have you read much of Kondo's stuff? Because I haven't, but I know the, the certain sections of the internet... I'm not even I'm not casting aspersions here, but love Kondo's stuff. Yeah, um, there's actually an interesting article on Zimmert.moe that uh, goes over some of his uh, Gundam manga and shows off some of his art. Uh, I've actually read a little bit of it. I reviewed the first volume of this back in the day. And also my uh, brother-in-law actually collected a few issues of this in floppy form because Viz really actually released this twice. What? There's floppies of this? Yes. Uh, this was licensed by Viz in the 1990s. I don't know how far they got with the floppies. My brother-in-law had like seven of them. And it was re-released in the early 2000s to coincide with the release of First Gundam on Toonami. Uh, they only got nine out of the 12 volumes done. Man, don't, co don't copy that floppy, kids. Yeah, because unfortunately, while Kondo is very good at drawing mobile suits, he's not so good with retelling the story of First Gundam, and he's really not good at drawing Yasuhiko's character designs. <laughs> Your yeah, you, taste might vary. You linked to uh, some examples of character sheets, and uh, you know, I clicked through it, and let me, let me see how, how close this is, and uh, woo boy, it is. Yeah. I, what, Amara, I, I hardly know you. <laughs> <laughs> the ladies in particular are kind of like, ugh. He seems to excel in very gritty, like, dirt-smeared mecha designs and faceless like, grunt soldiers. Yes. Some people, like I said, a lot of military taku, for better or for worse, love this shit. Yeah, so, understandably, this wasn't the bridgehead they were looking for. 
If Sunrise wanted any hope of actually reaching those manga-reading American teens in the early 2000s, they needed something new and different. And that's where the origin comes in. Now, when I was doing the history notes, in my mind, because I'm not as knowledgeable about the American manga market in the early aughts, um, but I thought this was kind of wild, because I think of the manga market now as being very, very lucrative, perhaps at its most lucrative. And when I think back to the early 2000s, I was reading manga very casually. I remember going into stores like Borders or Barnes & Noble and seeing a pretty robust um, section of the store dedicated to manga, but nowhere near like it is today. And I was wondering, like, Megan, do you think in retrospect that this had the possibility of success, re-releasing or releasing a retelling of First Gundam to the American market in the early 2000s? I can definitely see where the people at Bondi and Sunrise were coming from, because while sales in the early 2000s was not as big as they are right now in the middle of the pandemic, this was the point where manga was really taking off in America in general. This is the point uh, where a lot of the big shonen titles of that time, like Dragon Ball, a lot of the big uh, sh uh, shoujo titles of the time, like Sailor Moon and Cardcaptor Sakura and all that good clamp stuff, were starting to get really popular. And sales were just rising and rising, and they would keep rising until around 2007, because that's when the bubble burst. So I don't blame them for looking at this growing market and be like, we need to get in on this. I suppose it's cheaper, too, because you're not, you're not doing a television show solely to cater to the American market. A manga is definitely more, much more cost-efficient and much, more, much less resource-intensive. Now, to their credit, Yoshi and his fellow ex executives knew they had something big on their hands. A retelling of First Gundam revered as it is, by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko, revered as he is, was going to be a big deal in Japan. So, they were going to make arrangements to meet the expectations of fans. And Yasuhiko, for that matter, because keep in mind, at this point in our history, he's in his early 50s. He has a storied career under his belt, which meant he had the authority to set terms. He did not have this authority earlier in his career, especially in the 1980s when he struggled so much, um and butted heads so much with studio executives and corporate sponsors. So after that initial agreement was like signed, or you know, when that handshake was concluded in May 2000, a few months eventually passed, not much happened. Not much happened until late 2000. Yasuhiko was busy scribbling and planning in secret. Meanwhile, Sunrise approached Shinichiro Inoue, the president and CEO of Katakawa Shoin Publishing, about publishing a brand new Gundam manga written and illustrated by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. So Sunrise was selling this idea to another company to partner with. Not only did Inoue like the idea, but being a fan himself, he really wanted to get a look at Yas's sketches. Now, also keep in mind here, like Yas had to be talked into it a bit, but he was definitely excited at the opportunity to revise First Gundam. Looking back, despite its elevated reputation in pop culture, Yasuhiko saw 0079 more as incomplete, a show full of contradictions, awkward pacing, rushed storytelling, and narrative gaps. As he puts it, Mobile Suit Gundam, quote, was made in a cold room with a terrible schedule, end quote. With the benefit of hindsight and less pressing deadlines, Yasuhiko believed he could correct some of these issues. Yeah, he's uh, mentioned in uh, interviews related to this how, as someone who was so involved in the creation of the show in the first place, he felt like he was one of the few people who almost had the right to be able to do this, to 
kind of go back and revise the show without necessarily stepping on Tamino's toes. Yeah, I imagine that was of... He's talked about this a lot, too, and especially in regards to the OVA, why more of Origin wasn't adapted into an OVA format was out of respect for Tomino. Has Tomino ever gone on record about his opinions about the Origin and or the OVA? Not that I've ever seen. Yeah, nor have I that I've seen. Actually, Megan, why don't you take this next bit? Because this was very enlightening to me. Uh, yes. This is a note I found in a 2020 interview that was actually posted on Crunchyroll News. Um, it was actually an interview talking about what would become the Kukuru's Doans movie, though it hadn't been announced at the time. But Yasuhiko talked about how frustrated he felt with other later Gundam works, and the fandom in turn put so much emphasis on new types and a lot of the other sci-fi trappings within the Gundam universe to the exclusion of everything else. And in particular, he recalls being very struck uh, in 1995 about how dangerous groups like Om Shinrukyo, the, the infamous cult, co-opted some of the ideas and looks of shows like Gundam and other sci-fi anime to exploit others and to justify terrible acts like the infamous sarin gas attacks on Tokyo. And this is also in part motiv- was part of his motivation to make Gundam the origin, that he hoped by remaking Gundam in his own fashion that he might bring the focus back to the quote-unquote small people and critique, again, quote-unquote, the absurdity of elitism. Interesting. I need to go back and, because I've been doing a lot of these history segments, and usually I'm going back into articles and history books studying the economic bubble, the fallout from the bubble in the early 90s, but because we haven't covered too much from the late 90s, I haven't had to really dive deep into the sarin gas attacks, even though it's such a important cultural moment in Japan and really looked at that event through multiple lenses. But something I'm very interested about doing in the future. Oh, it'll come up eventually. Yeah. I imagine it's also going to come up when uh, we, whenever we cover Ava, because I know there's some <laughs> connection there. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> now at the outset, again, we're in the year 2000. He had some clear goals for this adaptation. And I'm sure we could all are all in agreement about these goals, because if I were given the opportunity to revise First Gundam... I would, you know, take some of these, this, these were some, these would be some of my clear goals for that adaptation. He wanted to smooth out some of the rougher edges of First Gundam, filling in plot holes, providing more socio-political context, eliminating unnecessary story beats, and overall making a more streamlined and comprehensible story with distinct arcs. But also, keep in mind that he had great, he had and has great respect for the source material and wanted to do right by it. He wasn't, at least as far as my interpretation goes, he wasn't. He had no axe to grind. He was given the opportunity to retell First Gundam, and he has reasons why he would want to go back and retell First Gundam. Number one, the show was canceled abruptly. Number two, he was hospitalized for the last stretch of it. And yes, he did get the opportunity to revise some of those last beats or contribute to some of that those last arcs with the film, Encounters in Space, but I imagine it's not the same as doing an episode-to-episode television show. At the same time, he didn't want to be beholden to a television show that was then over 20 years old. He wanted to exercise artistic license and make creative changes to the formula. He puts it well, so let him do the talking here. Quote, We all knew back when we made Mobile Suit Gundam that some of the story elements weren't exactly the best they could have been. I also felt that I didn't have to follow the story of the original so closely. I was there when we made it. I knew how we made it within that crazy tight schedule and very limited resources. 
There were so many unnatural or illogical things that ended up in the anime. End quote. I could put that last bit on a t-shirt. I'll tell you that. There were so many unnatural and illogical things. Again, I feel like I feel like it seems that we're coming from Tomino in these uh, these episodes, and we're not. I get not <laughs> exclusively going for Tomino here, but man, I mean, I really do agree with Yas's takes on Mobile Suit Gundam, the television show. That's not necessarily all about Tomino. You know, maybe he's talking about things like the G armor and all those other things that the toy company made them put in. Very true. Very true. Of course, they weren't free from corporate influence very few anime directors and creators are like a a very select few can really get away with doing what they want without corporate interference now we'll talk more about this later but having we've all read the manga do yas's words ring true do you see this impulse to revise correct and streamline the events of first gundam in origin so i haven't heard pmc in a while i'm gonna throw this to pmc first pmc do you see this in uh, the origin adaptation Absolutely. I I think there is no question that when it comes especially to, I don't know, kind of the simple details of connecting things, uh, I I think a lot of people are reasonably fixated on geography when talking about origin streamlining. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, uh, that's, you know, that's one place to be. There are other ways in which it happens, but certainly looking, looking at that alone in some of the reordering events, you, you can see, you can see the impulse. I'm also in agree. Oh, I was gonna say I'm also in agreement. It's not necessarily as obvious early on, but once he starts kind of shifting around the orders events and uh, the geography of things, then it becomes very obvious, and it only grows from there. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with both of you. A lot of my comments when I'm giving my takes talk about this, so I'm gonna save some of that for later. But I definitely see that. Like I. Yas's words for me really ring true. And if you haven't read The Origin and have similar issues with First Gundam, we're going we're gonna to recommend time and time again you to check out the, the manga, but definitely do so because I think um, that's present in the adaptation. Like his personality, Yas's expectations for this project at the beginning were mostly modest. Initially, he believed he would finish the manga in three years. Oh, oh Yas, you sweet summer child. <laughs> And the idea for prequel material hadn't even occurred to him. He did, however, make the request that each installment of the serialization consist of about 100 pages, which was not typical. Megan, I know you know a little bit more about this than I do. Yeah, I mean, your average manga chapter usually runs between 30 and 50 pages, not unlike American comics. So, you know, he's asking for something like two to three times the normal workload. And yeah, Yasuhiko is an amazing artist and a fast artist. Like, I don't know if you guys watched the uh, episode of Naoki Urasawa's Manben, the link I sent to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you not aware, uh, Manben is a series hosted by the famous mangaka Naoki Urasawa, uh, where he goes around to various notable mangaka, uh, films them working for like a few days, and then they meet up and they talk about like the technique and all that. And in the most recent season, one of the most recent episodes, he did that with Yoshikazu Yazuhiko. And it is amazing how fast the man works, even now. Uh, you know, he can finish a, just the pencils on his manuscript pages within less than half an hour. And keep in mind, he doesn't do what a lot of manga could do, where they draw kind of like a layout, like a rough layout, like the panels are going to go here, the characters and the speech bubbles go there. Or even draw like guides, like, like, you know, you draw the head and you draw the lines to show where like the face and the mouth go. He doesn't do that. He just... He's able to visualize it and then just start drawing on the page. And he inks equally as fast. 
because he uses brushes. He doesn't use pens like a lot of mangaka. And that allows him to ink very fastly. Again, he can do he can do a whole manuscript page within an hour. I did see a recent interview that uh, Zionic Scans translated where he talked about back in the day doing those beautiful uh, cover images which were used for the magazine covers. He'd paint those within a day, and now he jokes like, oh, it'd take me at least two, maybe upwards of a week. <laughs> and and what, he's in his early 70s at this point? Yes. I, I'm amazed at the talent that man had when he was younger, but especially the talent that he continues to exercise well until his older years. I'm, I'm incredibly impressed, especially from my perspective, who is a very methodical and, quite frankly, very lazy creative when it comes to <laughs> writing. I certainly cannot do anything... Um, artistically like uh, drawing that he can i watched bits of that documentary the it was very relaxing to watch him work i could watch a bob ross s show with yasuhiko and i would tune in weekly to that because there's something very methodical very rhythmic and very tranquil about watching that man work and also keep in mind uh he doesn't have assistance Th- that astounds me just because i know how other mangaka work like for instance oh megan remind me because i'm not a berserk fan yet uh the yeah, Miura has several assistants. I mean, he does p- produces beautiful artwork, but he had several assistants working o- with him on Berserk, right? Right, and he himself was formerly assistant to the uh, the creator of Hajime no Ippo. Mm. Do you know of any like other mangaka who do everything by hand themselves? God, that's a good question. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to know. If any listeners out there know, please feel free to reach out because I'm very curious myself. Because oh, I think, you know, Yasuhiko is like of a certain class that's really not matched by his peers. And yeah, he's he's very unusual. Like, his stuff is entirely analog. It's all pen, paper, and ink. He doesn't do any digital stuff. And most of, like, somebody else handles, like, the screen tones. But, uh, yeah, all the drawing, all the inking, that's him and him alone in his s- small home office. And you get the, and each panel really has that painterly quality, which I find so attractive as a reader. Like there's some, there's something very warm about his designs, dating back to all the way to First Gundam and even prior to that. I mean, many critics of the time talked about his um, warm designs and how that influenced the aesthetics of Gundam overall. Oh yeah, and I'd argue that influenced mecha character designs well into the '80s. Everything from Ideon to Pat Labor. Mm, yeah, I could definitely see that. Now, keep in mind, so he wanted 100 pages um, in each installment of the serialization, which is atypical. It's a pretty big ask. So when Katakawa Shoin was approached about possibly publishing this manga under these restrict not restrictions, but, you know, meeting these goals, they thought to themselves, well, I mean, we have several long-running publications like New Type, but they couldn't possibly dedicate 100 pages to First Gundam in a magazine like New Type. There just wasn't enough space, and there, what space there was was being allocated to other things. Yeah, like like ads or big like drawings or five-star stories. Exactly. Is five-star story still in New Type? Yes. Man, I'm gonna, each episode I'm going to complain about how we don't have five-star stories. I guarantee you. Each origin episode, I'm going to try squeezing in there somewhere. <laughs> so at this point, Inoue would have to get creative. So he came up with the idea of starting up an exclusive Gundam manga magazine to essentially house Yasuhiko's as-of-then unnamed manga. His peers at the company weren't exactly sold on the idea, as fandom-specific manga magazines were simply not a thing in those days. And remember, when we're talking about those days, we're talking about the early 2000s. 
Nevertheless, he persisted, and on June 25th, 2001, the first issue of Gundam Ace hit magazine stands. So, Megan, I know you have some history with Gundam Ace. I believe you have an issue or two. Uh, I, I wish my web camera was working right now so I could actually <laughs> show you guys, but I do, in fact, have the first issue of Gundam Ace because... My husband studied Japanese in high school, and mm. the summer before his senior year, they did an exchange pro, a bit of an exchange program, that summer. So he was able to pick this up right off the racks around the time it came out. And let me tell you, it is a trip. Like, there's like interviews, there's ads for all these Gundam being released on DVD. Ooh. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, right away, ma magazine size, you know, there are, there's the first few chapters of Gundam the Origin. Just absolutely beautiful. Along with some other uh, known Gundam manga of the time. Um, there's the first installment of Gundam Song, the famous uh, parody manga. Uh, there's also the first chapter of Char's Deleted Affair, which is by another Gundam character designer, uh, Kitazune which itself is kind of notorious, but this is not the time and place to get into it. <laughs> I'm imagining now your walls draped in Gundam Ace, but you don't have your webcam on, so I'm imagining just <laughs> wallpaper filled with Gundam Ace lining your walls. Oh, hardly. I would, I would never take this magazine <laughs> apart. Well, not the least of which because it's my husband's, but also just... This is just a fascinating artifact unto itself. I think it's super cool also that your husband was able to study Japanese in high school, we have a pretty, you know, I'm a high school teacher, and we have a pretty comprehensive world language department at our school. We have Mandarin, for example, but we do not have Japanese. If we did, and there's a Japanese teacher like chilling in the lounge, I would probably routinely go to them with like questions about pronunciation, which I frequently <laughs> botch on this podcast, but also probably asking. I would literally probably pay them to translate uh, obscure uh, interviews, without a doubt. Actually. My, one of my coworkers did the JET program, like many fellow English teachers. Was stayed in Japan for ten years. Um, he uh, met his wife in Japan. They now live in the States. I've been very tempted to go. I will pay your wife to translate this obscure interview from <laughs> this obscure Sega Genesis magazine. I haven't yet, but I've been very tempted to. PMC, do you know anything about Gundam Ace? I have heard, okay, so I will I will say right now I've heard Gundam Ace mentioned previously uh, because I think it came up in uh, we, it came up previously on Giant Robot FM I think when you brought up the idea of why isn't there a Macross Ace or something to that effect. Well, there was, and it wasn't oh, as successful as it wasn't Gundam as Ace. successful. Okay, so there was. I misremembered that, but anyway, the, I was actually surprised to learn that, and this is probably me mixing up New Type and Gundam Ace because I think New Type is is older but like i was surprised yes. gundam ace only started uh in in 2001 i did not know that i think again because i was confusing it with new type i thought it was much older than that new type's been around since zeta Gun gundam came out right megan like 85 yeah sometime in the 80s but yeah i mean part of the reason they were releasing this magazine is they were trying to tie it in with the the big 20th century uh celebration the big bang as they called it then you know, that's the point where they're doing, like, special little short films for exhibitions. That's part of the reason they may turn a Gundam. But, unfortunately, a lot of those 20th century... Uh, sorry, 20th century... 20th anniversary events were not doing so hot. Yeah, my, my favorite... So, the reason I know there was a 20th anniversary <laughs> thing... I'm sorry, I'm doing it again. 
I know exactly where you're going. <laughs> yeah, is uh, because of the Dreamcast video game uh, Gundam 79 Rise from the Ashes was yes. part of the 20th century, uh, the 20th anniversary. I did the same thing, an anniversary project. Um, and uh, I, I can't imagine, I mean, I'm so glad it was localized, but I can't imagine it was too successful. Yeah, we actually, the 20th anniversary comes up a lot in history episodes. Endless Waltz released because of it. Um, and other reasons, of course. Uh, the double the the O eight MS team Miller's report came out. Yep. We talked about that first Gundam. I can't remember what it's called. It debuted on the three screens. That's like Big Bang hour. Project. Yeah, okay, that's the one. And there was a short by Otomo, I believe, that he directed. That was about three minutes long. That premiered alongside that. So lots of cool stuff. Lots of stuff that's almost quasi lost media that we'd really like to go back and explore. I I wish we had Gundam Ace in the states. It would it. Like I, there are circulation numbers on Wikipedia. I'm not sure how accurate they are, and they date back to like four, five, six years ago. The last ones we got, I think circulation somewhere between 150,000, 200,000. If it released in the United States, it would probably be like 5,000 to 10,000. But man, I would be there day in, day out, week in, week out, really month in, month out, and I would pick up a copy. Actually, if if that existed, we'd probably have a monthly podcast dedicated <laughs> to Gundam Ace and and reading the latest. Uh, serializations there's some cool stuff in there like i talked about g unit that really obscure gundam wing manga it got a sequel that's currently being serialized now like what is the market for that i I ask you i don't know but i do wish more manga from gundam ace did get licensed and localized because the history of english language gundam manga is kind of spotty and there's not been a lot of it recently and there's some interesting stuff that's you know still being published in that magazine right now like char's daily life which is a delightful little comedy series about Char getting basically isekai'd into modern day Japan with no knowledge of what he you know was <laughs> or what he did and basically has to try to make for an identity for himself. It's delightful. Uh, I think there's an, another one running right now where Haman Karn is an office lady and various other characters from <laughs> Zed on Double Set oh. show up. I've seen tweets about that. Yeah, because I think like Camille shows up too. Yeah, no, yes. that, lo- that looks incredible. Or like there's a food manga involving Ramba Raw. Like, there, there's all sorts of wonderful and wacky stuff that gets published in there that just nobody wants to touch in English. I want, we're going to talk about this later and talk about this next week as well. But that Kai manga, those two Kai <gasps> mangas, I really want those. And yes. I very much doubt we'll ever get them. But, you know, this ta- this speaks to just how popular UC Gundam is, but particularly First Gundam. Because it's an institution unto itself, not unlike... Star Wars A New Hope. Not Star Wars in general, but A New Hope in particular, and that like Republic or that Alliance Empire dichotomy um, that appears all the time. But people just want to keep eating that time and time again. And I feel like the same is true with First Gundam. Yeah, there's always new angles, there's always new characters to explore it from. Yeah. So at this point, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, though. And it meant, Megan, you talked a bit about this, but can you go into a little bit more detail about the process, like Yasuhiko's process of illustrating and write origin, writing origin to meet a monthly schedule? Because he's, at this time, like we said before, he's no spring chicken. I mean him no offense, but he's at this point 55 years old, and he is about to commit to what would become a 10-year odyssey. Well, like I said, most of the magazines he tends to work with before and since are monthly installations, if not longer, so... It's not so much that the time frame was unusual for him, at least like on a regular basis. And as I noted before, you know, he is an incredible draftsman. So the challenge of making 100 pages is maybe not as great to him as it might be to others. But you really just have to admire that, you know, he's 
making his manuscript pages. He's doing the color pages and watercolors. He's making like the watercolor and gouache painting uh, uh, images for the magazine covers. He's doing those so much. Those covers are gorgeous too. I have an entire art book of those, and I actually have a. Ooh. Yep. Uh, I act- there's a little story behind that. I actually saw it when. My husband and I went to Japan on our honeymoon in 2016, and we went to, I forget, I think, was it Gundam Base then? I, I forget what its name is now since this revamp. But anyway, we, we went to the, the big Gundam installment at Adiva, and I almost picked it up at the gift shop there, but it was like, oh, I'll probably find it cheaper at the you know, the bookstores and like Akihabara or something. Spoilers, I didn't. So <laughs> I think it was, I didn't get it until my birthday on 20 in 2020 because my husband knew that I really wanted it and a bit and I regretted not picking it up then and there. Mm-hmm. Did the first Gundam Ace issue have the colored pages or some yes. colored pages? Very yes, cool. it did have the colored pages. Yeah, those are a highlight. Um we'll talk more about that his- the history of um the colored version of Origin a bit later, but still beautiful. Now, we talked about, you know, Yasuhiko is doing a lot of this alone, but he wasn't entirely alone in this endeavor. Yes, he was writing and illustrating the manga himself, but he had a bit of help from his old colleague and friend, Kunio Okawara, who makes many appearances on Daily Mecha, and sometimes I creatively spell his name wrong, who designed New Mechs. Now, given the commercial and creative origins of this project, there would, of course, be a host of new mobile suits to accompany the release of the manga. <laughs> it would be wild if one of the agreements that Yasuhiko made with Sunrise would be like, yeah, I'm going to do I'm gonna do Gundam of the Origin for 10 years in your magazine. No new mechs. I will not allow new mechs. <laughs> if, he, if, he managed to get, if he wanted to do that and managed to get that agreement, that would be uh, unprecedented. But there are quite a few new mechs in Origin. Do you have some favorites, or because we love talk highlighting the general, the you know standout mechs, or maybe some general standouts? Because you know some of the mechs got new designs, but weren't entirely new mechs themselves. PMC, hit me with some like mech takes. Do you have a favorite from Origin? Generally speaking, everything that happens involving gyms in Origin is spectacular. Yeah. Uh, but I will I'll highlight particularly uh, Sela's enhanced gym that she gets in the Battle of Abaku as just being very neat, and I wish it did more things. I mean, she does some good stuff with it, but, like, you know, have it hang around a little bit. What about you, Megan? Have you built any of the kits from any of the Origin mechs? I have not, and I've got a bit of a hot take. Ooh. I don't really care for Kunio Okawara's designs on Gundam. Not that I hate them! It's just I'm pretty indifferent to his AD stuff in general. It just it does nothing for me, and I didn't really pay much attention then or now to them. Now my husband, that's a different story because he's more into the gunpla, and he noticed the little differences in design and the way they were drawn in the manga as he read it. And in fact, uh, this would be of course much later. These would be kits for the OVAs. The first kit he got when he got back into model building was the origin prototype gun tank he's really into the, the prototypes they show off in that flashback arc oh man i like the gun tanks i like the fact that there are multiple gun tanks on the white base now we'll talk about those small changes later but a plus for me the, the one take i might have to share is that the um the the prototype gundam the the 781 i guess it is right that's it's got like the crash test dummy design i'm forever gonna think of that as the crash test dummy gundam like i can't <laughs> not think of it that way that's the one I wanted to highlight because I, the super like um, interesting touches on it. I like the vibe. Like, looks like 
something you'd find at a test site, like at a nuclear test site. I like the little radioactive stickers or whatever you want to call them, uh, like on, on its knees. I like the, the visor. The gold is very ostentatious and obnoxious, but I think it fits the, this prototypical ideal of what they hoped the uh, RX-78 to be. Very cool overall. We'll talk about the prequel stuff and whether or not it lands with you individually, but I liked I liked the scene this features in because it's very terrifying, and I really like the way the Gundam is framed. Uh, it's framed like this in the TV show, too, at times, but I really thought Yasuhiko has some really terrifying angles from this, this Gundam, and it was uh, a, a joy to read. Also, Yas had some help coming up with the name. I'll let Shinichiro Inoue explain. Quote, Incidentally, the audacity of naming the work fell upon me. I had origin in the back of my mind as a name for the protagonist of a hero manga I wanted to see created someday, but I didn't think I'd ever get a chance to use it, and the origin was kindly adopted as the title for the Yasuhiko Gundam. The fact that Mr. Yasuhiko himself liked it was, for me, the greatest joy. End quote. Now, of course, that sounds like PR speak. It is PR speak, but I think the origin's a fine name. I think it's very concise and to the point. And I think it does a lot of heavy lifting for what it is. Do you, do you ha- does anyone hate the name here? Nope. Yeah, I didn't think. I didn't think so. My only frustration with the name is I've been trying to brainstorm like a joke tweet using like the origin as coordinate zero 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 for a while, and I still haven't really settled on anything. But hopefully, mm. someday soon, you'll see a good tweet uh, where I make a very dumb joke about <laughs> the origin in a coordinate system. Welcome to the Giant Robot FM Twitter account. If you haven't had the <laughs> pl- privilege of following us, that's what you're in for. Occasionally bad Gundam dad puns, too. I'm sure I'll cook one up for the origin. I've been work- I've been workshopping one with Revel just because you could use the name of course. in multiple ways. We'll see if I come up I with mean, anything. What, what, you know, it's a military <laughs> story. Of course there has to be revelry. We all know this. <laughs> all right. The dad energy right now is off the charts. <laughs> Like I mentioned earlier, Gundam Ace released in June 2001, and with it, Gundam The Origin. The response was overwhelmingly positive. Inoue remembers, quote, Mr. Yasuhiko's manga single-handedly catalyzed an explosive response from fans who had reached, reacted coolly to fervent 20th anniversary promotions. It sagged into the subsequent Gundam revival and the popularity of Seed, end quote. So basically what he's saying here is a rising tide lifts all boats. And Gundam The Origin was so popular, especially at the beginning, that that sparked an interest in other Gundam-related media, particularly Seed. Now, I would flippantly say that Seed really needed it, because I don't like Seed. But (laughs) Seed is incredibly popular in Japan. Incredibly popular in Japan. Um, There's a generation who grew up with it. I didn't grow up with it personally. Even if I, I don't know, I don't know if it would ever land with me the same way Wing did, just because Seed, in my mind, is really rough. I've been following both my friend Russell and uh, another Gundam podcast, the Great Gundam Podcast, as they go through Seed, and (laughs) oh, that's been an adventure. Yeah, I'm very, very close to my regular stream viewers uh, pushing me over the threshold into playing Mobile Suit Gundam Seed Never Ending Tomorrow, having never watched Seed before. (laughs) So that could be very interesting. I make no guarantees about what that will be like. Is that a PS2 game or PS3? Yes, that's a PS2 game. That's correct. Oh, and it came out here? Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's a localized... I mean, a lot of... uh, You'd be surprised at what Bandai localized. They even localized their Eka 7 games, so... 
Really? Yeah. They're, those are localized. So yeah, no, they did Where- they did quite a bit in the gun in the anime boom. Oh man, where's my like translator Razafon game or the Gunbuster PS2 game? That's what I'm yeah, asking. Those you ones right didn't now. get it. Sorry. Yeah. Man, I can't believe the market wasn't there for Gunbuster in the <laughs> early 2000s in America. As the years wore as the years wore on, and 2001 became 2002, and 2002 became 2003, Yasuhiko's ambitions began exceeding his initial goal. There was no way he was going to come close anywhere to completing Origin in three years. Which, given the popularity of Origin, was in no way an issue for Katakawa Shoin or Sunrise. The fact that he was going to spend longer drawing and writing Origin, they had no problem with that because it was a real moneymaker for some time. And you could still feel the ripples of the popularity of Origin in Gundam Ace, which we'll talk about a little later. The decision to dedicate several years of his life to a wholly original exploration of Gundam's pre-story occurred when Yasuhiko was writing the Ramba arc. Something about Tachi, Haman's subordinate, of all people, got him thinking about how these characters all got together. I'm quoting Yasuhiko here. Quote, What's with this guy? I had to ask myself about the bit player who'd failed to snag my attention during the original animation production. No way he was just a guest character. There and gone in one episode. To Ral and Haman, he was no mere stranger. He couldn't be. End quote. So thus began the impetus for the past arc. Once the wheels started turning, Yasuhiko's scope for prequel material expanded beyond just Tachi, Haman, and Ral. Really, he wanted to dedicate a considerable portion of these volumes to Shar and Sela, whose backstory was largely omitted or elided in the original series. Lots of hot takes about the prequel material and origin, and we're going to have a lot to say about it later on, but... How do you all feel about the prequel volumes? I'm very warm on it. I'll elaborate a bit later. But how do you feel about... And for the record, if you haven't read the manga, it's volumes 7 or 5 through 7 of the manga, so that middle stretch. Uh, Megan, why don't you start us off here? I feel like that flashback arc, because it is basically one long extended flashback, is really where Gundam the Origin shifts into gear. Not to imply that it was bad before, but it's like, okay, this is where it really gets going, and it just does not stop from there. Totally agree. Yeah, it goes such a long way towards, I think, establishing the identity because it pays all those things off. When when the prequel material is at its best, it is, you know, firmly consistent with the characters already established, and then setting up things to pay off at the end of the one year war in in the final volumes, and it's all a lot of fun. Yeah, and. It really helps, even if you've never consumed any Gundam before, as I was the first time I read this. Like, by the point it comes around, you already have some bearings. You already know, you know, what's an Amro, what's a Shar, what's a Gundam. You've already heard references to this war and the Battle of Loom and all that. So you have some context, and this just builds upon that. And of course, if you already know the material going in, this, this just really expands on it. But it also... It's also the point where Yaz kind of has the most freedom to do what he wants because he's not really restrained by what's been done before in the show and the films. At most, stuff's been hinted at. So he can really kind of do whatever he feels like. And I will say, when if you just hear out of context, oh, this is a retelling of First Gundam. I haven't seen First Gundam. I probably won't understand what's going on. And I wouldn't blame you based on, for example, if you were to go into Gundam Wing glory of the losers without yes. having watched Gundam Wing you won't understand what's going on not to say that if you watch Gundam Wing and then read glory of the losers you'd understand what's going on <laughs> but it wouldn't 
Either way, it wouldn't work out, but I'm just giving you a, con- a contemporary example. Origin, we're going to talk about this a lot, so I don't want to say too much here, is incredibly focused, and there is a clarity of purpose to most things, which you rarely see in a lot of mecha shows, so I have to really give Yasuhiko a lot of credit, because that makes Origin a, a delightful read. Now, incredibly, we talked about Yasuhiko's work ethic, and just how time-consuming it is for most manga, I would say himself included, um, to do a uh, hundred pages per month but he was not solely working on origin throughout its 10-year run he was doing other stuff there were times when he was juggling multiple series for example during the early days of origin yasuhiko was also illustrating and writing alexandros a classic yas historical manga chronicling the rise and fall of alexander the great i want to sounds- read this i want to so- read this so badly the art kicks so much ass. And I said the same thing to myself. Uh, there are some scanlations, but I think it's incomplete. Um, but I also want to read a physical copy of this. I wish the demand in English-speaking countries for gas historical manga was greater. Maybe there is, and publishers just don't know it. And if so, write to your local <laughs> manga <laughs> publishing company and get the, call them up and get them to bring some of this out. Because maybe, you can, also, maybe it's not going to cost too much license either. I, like I, I know I'm kind of beating a dead horse here because hi- nobody seems to care about historical manga, but in particular, I really want to read the, his takes on like more European history, like Alexandros or Wagawa Nero, which is about Emperor Nero. Like that mm. just looks so freaking cool. Yeah, given my leftist politics, when I saw one, uh, Trotsky's in the name. I'm not sure it's dedicated oh, to Trotsky or the Russian Trotsky. Revolution. Uh, it is yeah. actually about kind of the early Showa era and uh, okay. Japan's push into Mongolia and China. Hmm. All right. But I'm still interested. But that caught my eye um, immediately. But also, all the stuff, because I'm also a history buff, and I really dig Yasu's writing and art, so any of this would be an easy sell for me. I think I'm going to try to track down Joan, because I like reading yes. manga, physical copies, and maybe I'll shell out the extra $70 for Volume 2 and get Volume 1 and Volume 3 on the cheap. Oh, please do so, and let me know what you think afterwards, because it's so good. It's so good. And you can see a lot of connective tissue between, like, these historical mangas and just a lot of the incidental dialogue in Yas Productions, because I started watching the OVA and the way Daikun is framed, and just, like, dropping allusions to, like, the Battle of Austerlitz. Like, you could tell, you could, like, Yasuhiko wears his passion for history on his sleeves, even if he's not doing historical manga. Oh, yeah. Now, Megan, do you know how many manga series of Yasu's ran concurrently with Origin in that 10-year span? I had to look it up myself, and the answer is five. Uh, in addition to Alexandros, uh, there was Nomi no O, which is one of a number of series he did where he deals with kind of like the earliest, almost mythical emperors in that kind of time frame of ancient Japan. Uh, Datan mm. Typhoon, which I can't find a lot of information about. It appears to be kind of more sci-fi-ish about a couple of girls in like 1960s Hokkaido. And I need to go slowly on this one to make sure I pronounce it correctly. Uruwashijima Yume Monogatari, which is set in the 1600s. I've actually seen some pages of this. It in- There's a, a ninja that basically looks like full frontal. <laughs> like the, the classical ninja garb, but like with the fluffy, bl- curly blonde hair. It's amazing. He designed, he designed Full Frontal, right, because he worked on Unicorn? Yes, he did the illustrations for the Unicorn novels, and that's what they adapted. Interesting. Man, I, w- I want to check that out. Full Frontal is a very distinct, very, uh, 
like a Brock Sampson design for all you Venture Brother fans out there. He's not as broadly built as Full Frontal, but it's like if Char had Full Frontal's hair and dressed as a ninja. I'm hoping with the manga boom we get something in the next three years, like just one translated something of Yass's. Maybe even what was came out before, but a reprinting or something. Even in a digital format, but I would prefer a hardcover or a, a paperback, something I could hold in my hands. Now, the origin concluded its run in Gundam Ace, providentially, on June 25th, 2011, exactly 10 years after its debut, with 23 total volumes. Its success can be measured in the pages of Ace to this day. Origin launched a fleet of related spin-off series by other mangaka, including a five-volume reimagining of Kukuru's Dawn, which, of course, is going to influence the film in some way, a side story called Hardgraph, which follows the Xeon soldiers featured in Time Be Still, an episode, the contents of, an episode of Mobile Suit Gundam, the contents of which were not included in Origin. It's a Tomino episode. It was probably hands-off for that reason, because Tomino wrote that episode. And multiple series on Kai, which we'll talk more about next week. And there's tons more, because people cannot get enough of first Gundam material. Though there in if you take a look at like what has premiered in Gundam Ace, there's like cool Zeta stuff too. It's not just first Gundam. So for all you diehard UC enthusiasts, there are little, you know, other nuggets for you to explore too. It should also be noted that while Yas's career has largely been defined by not necessarily following trends, the origin itself became a trendsetter. Mm. Like you start to see other Gundam manga in the same vein, like let's retell the story, uh, usually involving some somebody from the crew. Uh, there was a origin style manga for G Gundam done by that show's character designer, and I remember Ooh. around the time this came out, he did the first opening in the manga. Like he, he drew it out with uh. like the lyrics and everything. I've seen people set that to the song. It's amazing. It's also very, very long. Cool. It's gone on a hiatus a few times. Um, there's one running right now for 0080. Uh, I believe it's called 0083 Rebellion. Oh, I've seen scanlations of this online. Uh, you mentioned it before. In Gundam Wing Glory of Losers. That's done by the show's head writer, even if it also incorporates some of his uh, later related works. <laughs> for all you Glory of Losers fans, I own all 14 volumes, and you could... I spent $200 on that. You could bet we're going to make some use of that content. I'm going to force PMC to read them. It's going to come up sometime. Yeah, that's another that's another sword hanging over my head, but I'll, I'll get through it. I'm I'm I it'll be, you know, it's a great chaser for the origin. It, it's not a bad <laughs> manga from what I've seen. It's just that uh it, it goes places. Yeah, we'll talk about it, but a quick hot take. I think it's better than the TV show. Maybe that's not a hot take. I don't know, but <laughs> I mean, this even spread out into other fandoms. There was an origin-style manga for Macross that was published in the the magazine you mentioned before. Mm. Though I don't know if that one's finished. I know it went on hiatus for a while. Yeah, they, they, we talked about this on the, that episode, too. They were cooking up one for Ma Macross Plus, and it was releasing. But I'm not sure if it's like a one-to-one -one retelling of that very short OVA. But no, but there was one for the OG Macross. Oh, very cool, very cool. Yeah, given the fact that there's only nine volumes of Macross Ace, I would say it's probably not complete, unless it continued after that. I would have no idea, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, Gundam The Origin has an interesting publishing history in America, doubly so when you consider that it wouldn't even exist if not for the American market, and yet its popularity in Japan soon eclipsed those ambitions. But it did receive a concurrent-ish release in the United States, 
During the waning days of the Gundam boom, Viz began releasing paperback volumes in April 2002, over two years after the premiere of Wing, and about a year after it started in Gundam Ace, and about six months after First Gundam was pulled from the air. Megan, question. How are these releases, the Viz releases? I wish I could tell you, because they did not sell well. And they are pretty exquisitely rare. I know maybe one or two mutuals in my Twitter feed who have any volumes. I don't know anyone who has a complete run. And the thing is, the format itself was kind of odd, is that they took those 100-page chunks and basically published them uh, in the same way you might would, uh, like, Marvel DC publishes, like, their trade collections. It's about that size. Mm-hmm. Okay. But unfortunately, you know, this is the early 2000s, and the only Gundam that American fans care about is Wing. Yeah, speaking of which, like, Tokyo Pop scooped up the license for Wing-related material and a bunch of other loosely related Gundam series. Do you know if there's a reason why Viz got the rights to the origin? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, right now, in the Gundam manga space, we have, you know, Denpa bringing out some stuff in the future, Mm -hmm. and we have... Who's bringing Thunderbolt? Is that Viz? That's Viz. Okay, so they they do they are still working with Sunrise and Bandai. Yes, and maybe it was just Viz trying to get ahead of Tokyo Pop once because Tokyo Pop kind of got most of the Wing manga that was released here and profited from that. I think all they got was Episode Zero, but it mm. also could just come down to simply that they had the money to afford Gundam: The Origin, and Tokyo Pop did not. We you know without being able to ask somebody working behind the scenes, we just don't know. Yeah. I wonder if in these Viz releases there were any exclusive interviews or content that hasn't yet been released in English. If so, that would be a treasure. I'm guessing not, but if anybody out there listening to this has any of those volumes, please share some... I can talk, I swear. Share some pictures. You know, I'm really curious as to what it looks like, what the translation was like, what the lettering looks like. I'm, I'm deeply curious. But yeah, because all we have to go on, at least from my perspective, are the cover art, and the, is the cover art. And I think it's very cool. And a lot of cover art, which I just either passed over or is not included in the vertical releases. A lot of it is, especially in the back pages. I don't know. I questioned some of the, the font and graphic designs on the on the covers. That they're, they're very futuristic in a early 2000s tsunami sort of way, and I don't know if very it entirely tsunami. fits. Yeah, I was gonna say that too. It's absolutely channeling tsunami or like uh, like the new adventures of Johnny Quest or something, you know. <laughs> Despite high hopes and the best of intentions, Viz canceled the run after twelve volumes in July two thousand four. Interest in Gundam at this time was leveling out after the smash hit that was Wing, and the more grounded sensibilities of the UC timeline didn't inspire the same fervor in the U.S. As noted before, Viz was releasing. Kazuhisa Kondo's first Gundam mon- manga adaptation at the sa- same time, which was also canceled. So there was definitely a competing... Like, the market was very crowded as is. And you could argue that Viz was competing with themselves for the same fans, and both releases suffered for it. You know, once you get into the 2010s, you get Gundam Unicorn. And that not only brought in the interest of maybe lapsed Gundam fans who were brought in by those original UC works but kind of fell out during the era of Seed and Double Zero, but also new fans who were picking it up as Bondi and eventually Right Stuff released it and became interested in all rights. And of course, this would become a big trendsetter uh, with 
Sunrise, but we'll talk about this more when we get into the origin OVAs. And Vertical Comics, you know, everybody's favorite niche publisher of the time, would take advantage of this upswing and in interest in UC Era Gundam to announce their license for Gundam The Origin at Otakon 2012. Now, I remember, at, this is the point where I was already into manga, so I remember at the time how Vertical's marketing manager and now head of Denpa Books, Ed Chavez, was very upfront about how risky Gundam The Origin was for Vertical. While he himself was a fan of the manga, he was very aware that not only had it failed in its initial US release, it had also performed poorly in France and Italy and Spain, and these are places where manga sales and the manga market is very strong and they've they've published other Yasuhiko books that have never been published in English so it's not like there wasn't an audience for him that's very interesting because I've been looking up um, information on rather obscure mecha manga there's particularly a front mission manga by the Thunderbolt artist that of all places or it th I thought to myself man of all places it was released here but it got a release in France and never got a release in any English speaking country so I was curious just how fertile the ground was the manga market was or is in france oh france has a big manga market because they've been at it much longer than we have manga started mm. getting published in there in the 70s interesting in interviews from the time chavez also notes that the license had not come cheaply you know katakawa and sunrise did not give them much of a discount and one of the conditions that they insisted upon was that vertical release the series in full if Origin flopped again in the U.S., he stresses that it could have very easily ruined Vertical as a company. Like, it could have driven them out of business. So, HFS decided to approach Origin in the same way he had with some of the classic Osama Tezuka titles that Vertical had been releasing around that time, like Buddha or Blackjack. So, Vertical's release of the Origin would be treated like a collector's item. They would give it a deluxe look hardback covers with original color artwork uh, because this is based on the Aizenoban release from Japan uh, which are two-in-one omnibuses basically but I've seen copies of those uh, in Japan they, they have these you know nice cream colored covers with like gold foil littering and maybe a little picture on it I mean it looks really nice it looks really classy but it's not exactly something that's going to drive American fans to pick it up and he would also include all the supplemental interviews, essays, and comics from other notable creators that were included with the original Japanese release. He also originally intended it to be a very limited release. Originally, only 5,000 copies of each volume would be printed, and that was it. And uh, Vertical received some pushback from the purchasing agents at some of the major bookstore chains of the time. They were skeptical that a uh, such an expensive manga would appeal to the manga buying audience at the time because those books aren't cheap. The MSR MSRP on those is 30 bucks. I think even now, like you get them sale on right stuff, they're usually like 17. Yeah, I think I got them for about 20 each generally from the places I picked them up from. But amazingly, Echeves' strategy worked better than anyone could have anticipated, even him. So Vertical would release the series from 2013 to 2015 in you know 12 gorgeously illustrated hardcover omnibuses, complete with all those interviews, all the gag manga, all the additional artwork. And thanks in no small part to good reviews, 
good word of mouth uh, and a concentrated effort on the part of Gundam fandom to support the release and pre-order it when and where they could, it went from one of Vertical's biggest risks to one of its biggest successes, like right up there with Cheese Sweet Home. The first printing of the manga sold out in a month, and within its first year, it would be reprinted three times. Origin would become Vertical's best-selling manga in both 2013 and 14. If you look at the book scan charts from that time, uh, over those two years, Volume 1 sold over 10,000 copies. That's not bad, especially in a, well, I guess it's not a pre-Attack on Titan world, but it's at the point where Attack on Titan is just getting popular, and the manga market is just taking off. And it also showed up regularly on the New York Times manga bestseller list. And in fact, Volume 9, the one you're giving away recently, uh, actually <laughs> would top it in the April of 2015. Uh, I even know uh, some mutuals who used to work in comics retail talk about how this release would basically sell itself. Like, people would pick it up and be, and, you know, they might recognize Gundam, but, but also just look at the books like, oh, this is special. Like, th this is fancy. I need to pick this up. I, I recall Echevez telling stories at cons, you know, where Vertical would have a booth and people just picking up big swaths of this. <laughs> like carrying away in their backpacks, which is amazing because those books are heavy. And like you're yeah, picking I, up even like half the run would probably bring your luggage to the limit. Yeah, I had the p a pleasure of carting a bunch of them over to PMC's house. And yeah, it was, it was my workout for the day. <laughs> so yeah, you know, Gundam The Origin was a bona fide hit. That's really encouraging to hear just because I am desirous of more manga content, particularly Gundam manga content. And I hope or would have hoped that this would have launched more of a trend with publishers. It also helps that the hardcovers, we'll talk about how gorgeous they are in just a second, really do attract the eye if you're walking through a Barnes & Noble. Usually the strategy, I think, from like brick-and-mortar places is we're not going to stock all 12 volumes. Well, we'll stock volume 1 and 2, and then hopefully you continue buying these volumes from us. But volume 1 and volume 2 might be impulse buys just based on how unique the packaging is. Let's gush about the hardcovers. PMC, this is your first introduction to manga. I hate to tell it to you, but not all manga looks this gorgeous no. and is this aesthetically pleasing on a shelf. Nope. That's frustrating. You know, it's kind of funny. So I, uh, the thing I read before reading all of these volumes back to back, and I, can, I think there actually was some overlap uh, when I was in the early volumes, I had just finished reading all, uh, all nine books of The Expanse, but I did so, and I know this is going to hurt the physical media fans here, I did so on a Kindle, so I was alternating between the experience of reading, you know, a novel on a Kindle and reading, uh, reading the manga. And um, the Kindle has, you know, I don't fear for my nightstand when I place the Kindle on it for the structural <laughs> stability of my nightstand. Uh, but of course, you know, there is, some, yeah, there is some pleasure. I think it particularly, it, it really is true how eye-catching all of them are, and, and the diversity. I, I think when I think of um, big sets of something, I often. I kind of I, I'm a natural contrarian when it comes to collecting things, and so I see someone trying to con me into collecting a whole set, and I initially I immediately re uh, resist that urge. With this set, uh, they don't sit on a shelf and form some image. There's it's not there's not some obvious collector's gag. They're all individually standout volumes of illustrations in the hardcovers, and so in this case, uh, rather than me being like ah yeah this is just a big set 
uh, I was just very excited when when Stephen would bring the next uh, the next volume or two over uh, for me, you know, to to continue a pace with my reading. Uh, I mean, they're great, and they all stand on their own, which I think is really also makes them a joy to read. Yeah, PMC's calling out my Patrick O'Brien Master and Commander collection, where my <laughs> twenty paperbacks do form an, several images of ships. Uh, which, by the way, look kick ass on my bookshelf, PMC. I'm I sure. love when books do that. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I thought we were going to wait to get to the hot takes when we actually talked about our opinions on Gundam: The Origin, but our hot takes are coming to the fore right now when we're talking about spine art, <laughs> like those Nintendo powers that they all well, line up. I, if it makes you feel any better, Stephen, there is one book series I own, own every book of physically, and that is Stephen Bruce uh, Jarek series. We both do. We both do. All right, yeah. there you go. Unfor- unfortunately, they don't they don't form any images. No. Megan, any hot takes about the... Uh, they're probably not hot takes. They're probably just takes, but gush about how gorgeous these the packaging is. Well, I'm a firm believer in physical releases of manga. I, To me, a bookshelf full of books is one of the happiest sites, and I treasure my copies, you know, lovingly purchased, both new and used, over time. And, I mean, what else is there really to say? They, they truly are just gorgeous well put together books megan do you prefer reading manga paperback or hardback um it kind of depends on the work i'm really not that particular just so long as it is a book it's not to say that i don't read digital manga because that's not true but i don't know i'm just i'm someone who likes the feeling of a physical book in her hands I'm the same way. I think I lean to a paperback just because I like to, even though it kind of damages the book, I do like being able to fold over the pages and read it at a more relaxed angle. Because the hardbacks, you kind of have to like be on your game with like both hands holding up the pages at times, depending on where you are in the volume. I would say the Gundam Origin are easier to read than some of my other hardback collections. I'm currently looking at my Nausicaa collection. Oh, which yeah. Is beautif- beautifully produced, but That's reading it's kind of a pain. Yeah. It's right next to my Magic Knight Rye Earth collections, which I haven't read yet, but <gasps> the pack, the the format's a little similar. Yeah, that that new Kadansha set. I actually have both of those as well. But yeah, just it they're just beautifully put together books from the hardcovers right down to the really nice paper used. Yeah, yep. And it feels so great against your your fingers. Yes. is recoiling as we gush over physical media here and the texture of the I mean, the look, I, I told you I have some books and I enjoyed reading these beautiful <laughs> releases, but I also know that if I ever have to move, I'm going to have a much easier time. Yeah, you've seen my bookshelves, you know, <laughs> if I ever move. It'll be easier just to burn the place down. <laughs> now, Megan, you had a question for us at this at this juncture. Yes, because we've mentioned that this release came with a whole bunch of supplemental stuff. So, of the various essays and drawings and comics and whatnot, what were your favorites? I'll let PMC go first in case he has the same one as me. So I think I already mentioned the the bit about how Yasuhiko provide his his comments below some of the the artwork at the end of volumes. Uh, so I already mentioned that, but the other one I would highlight, and I think this was especially useful for me as someone who is not familiar with manga and, and reading manga. And I, f- I forget who it was that did this. I, if I had the volume on hand, if I knew I had it, I would I would pull it up. But uh, there was some, I think some other mangaka did a short little comic just sort of obsessing mm. over Yasuhiko's process. Oh, uh, I, and it was really it, fun I think and it's funny. it's the same one that's my favorite, so I'll talk about it. Okay, this. we all love that then, I guess. Because <laughs> it's good. It's really great. It was really good. Uh, any others that stood out? 
Yeah, so I have volume two in my hand right now, and uh, I'm probably going to repost this on Twitter because I posted it way back when and did pretty well. But the Clamp interview, plus the reinterpretation of Amuro in the Clamp style, where it basically looks like Suzaku. Thank you! Um, I'm glad I'm not the only one who noticed. No, I mean, oh man, if you saw Cold Geass and didn't notice that, I'd be a little concerned because it looks very similar to Suzaku. Less... He has a less punchable face here. Oh. But it still looks like Suzaku. Are you a big Suzaku fan? No, I never got that far into Code Geass, yeah. but there's Good. there's a lot of people worthy of punching in Code Geass. <laughs> Very true. Uh, I would also punch Lelouch. Not that my punch would do much. I'm not a physically strong man, but I would still. For the record, I mean, he's Lelouch. a noodle boy. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Um, <laughs> with those stringy arms. But. There's also an interview with the members of Clamp, which I found really useful and will find really useful in the future. Number one, I think it's really cool how they're, you know, they're gushing about how much they like Yaz, which is cool. But also, not too many, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Megan, not, there's not too many English-speaking interviews with Clamp, period. Um, whenever we get around to doing Ray Earth, like, for example, we talked about those Ray Earth hardbacks. There's no supplemental material in those, as far as I know, and I did thumb through them. But he, it's, it's really nice to have some printed interviews with the collective, because... I really dig their stuff. I'm going to be doing future history episodes on them, and there seems to be a dearth of material from them, uh, interview-wise. Yeah, and the most recent stuff tends to be from around 2006 when they came to Anime Expo. There's not a lot of recent stuff, but it also coincides with when their career kind of starts to, I don't want to say go downhill, but when they start to ramp down because after they finish up Subasa and Holic, it it's basically just lots of hiatuses and sequels. But I, that interview was definitely amusing. I particularly like the park. The uh, part where I believe it's uh, Makona, who is the the main writer, the head of the group, and I forget who the other person in that interview was. I don't have my volume nearby, so I can't look for certain. Like they they gush over how cute Char is, and they I believe it's Makona who talks about how she met Yasuhiko because she went to the same salon as his wife. Yeah. And while the- Igarashi oh. uh, and Nikoi. Okay, uh, Igarashi. I think she's one of the writers, and Nikoi is one of the character designers. She's also kind of the alternate artist. She does stuff like uh, Holic and Drug and Drop and, and other side series like that. The current, the only currently running Clamp series is the Sakura, Cardcaptor Sakura sequel, right? Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're picking up the Holic sequel soon, which I'm excited mm. at least. Maybe they'll finish it someday. I'm very interested because whenever we do the Magic Knight Ray Earth, I was actually talking about this with someone else recently. I want to go back and read reread Tokyo Babylon, hopefully get my my hands on some early X stuff and some of their early, earlier, more obscure stuff like Clamp Detectives. But yeah, it, it's interesting because when they were active as a doujin group, they, they don't seem to have focused very much on Gundam at the time. Like if you find images of their doujin, it's usually a lot of JoJo's. They are big JoJo's fans. Uh, a lot of Saint Seiya, uh, a little bit of like Legend of the Galactic Heroes and Devil Man because the OVA just came out at that time. Not so much Gundam. Interesting. Did Clamp do the thing, the JoJo fan work with Is the Is this your Kakoyin? Yes. All right. I only know that through like podcast anime podcast discourse, but I'm glad I was right in my. It has been translated. There. I have read it. It is a trip. <laughs> I'm always down for stuff like that, and I don't, I don't even know JoJo well, but I definitely want to check that out. But yeah, my favorite, which apparently is also PMC's favorite, uh, which I think is from volume 11, question mark? Again, I don't have my volumes on hand, uh, is from Kazuhito Fujita, who, if you know him at all, is probably as the creator of Ushio and Tora, 
I remember him in particular for creating a really kick-ass short manga that nobody else seemed to read about Florence Nightingale called The Ghost and the Lady. I believe Kadansha put that Ooh. out. That's the only manga of his in English. But he talks about uh, going to a screening of Crusher Joe in the early 80s where Yasuhiko was in attendance and taking questions. And Fujita asks him about his process. And that's where he has talks about where he starts with the eyes and all that and explains why. And the best part is that Yasuhiko referenced this question in the interview uh, on the Crusher Joe Blu-ray. Like, he doesn't name Fujita by name, but he references that question. Interesting. Very cool. But my favorite part is towards the end where Fujita talks about how he almost feels kind of a kinship to Dozel of all characters, like sharing Gundam with his own kids and that how artists like him are in their own way kind of the children of Yasuhiko. I really love that phrase in particular. Yeah. His, his influences can be felt just generationally um, throughout manga and throughout anime. But, oh god, what else? What other ones did I find interesting? Uh, I loved Mamoru Nagano just gushing over various Gundam ladies. Uh, he particularly has a thing for blondes, apparently, because he talks about Sela and Hamon. And then, it can't be worse than the the Tomino interview where Tomino's talking about oh. Sailor's anatomy. <laughs> no, it's Nanai's. That, that's a different one. Um, <laughs> what else? Uh, the Makoto Shinkai one where he's talking about Yasuhiko's backgrounds. That's interesting. Uh, the little illustration. Um, oh, dang it. The, the Vinland Saga guy. I wish I remember his name offhand. We're talking about uh, how much he liked the Maharu arc. like, And, and even some of the, the weirder... Um, gag ones like they have the the Sayonara Setsubo guy doing one like oh we can actually use the name Gundam in our comic and it's this very meta comic all about that or <laughs> the Genshiken guy where just Amro shows up at the Genshiken club oh oh in the very first volume there's also the essay from Hideaki Anno talking about his own experiences handling a franchise something he was all too familiar with in 2005 yeah I wish other manga releases had this supplemental material like, I was craving this from the Gundam Wing manga. Maybe this didn't exist in Japan either, but I was really desirous of just a few interviews, or at least one interview, with uh, Sumizawa, the writer, about his process, of which there were none. And I was really, I felt, you know, very happy that there's so much of that in the Origin uh, series. Real quick, PMC, did you know that there are no Origin-specific video games? So we talked about how influential the origin manga was by itself, but there's no there's no origin huh. exclusive video game that you can speedrun. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I because I I, th I feel like by the time that sort of thing would have become relevant, we had clearly entered the era of big license adaptations are chasing multiplayer trends, which is kind of where we've been living in for the past ten years or so, especially Bandai. So I mean, I'm sad, but it doesn't surprise me. Also, it yeah. really probably wouldn't have come around until the OVA happened, and by right. that point, we're in Iron-Blooded Orphans territory. Yeah. Are there any exclusive single-player Iron-Blooded Orphans games? Not that I'm aware of. I think all yeah. the IBO stuff... I mean, IBO characters are popular in, you know, your fighters and all that, but... Gundam as versus. Far as, yeah. Notably, Origin received a third release in English in 2014 when Comic Walker began digitally releasing all 12 volumes in color and in both Japanese and English. Megan, this coloring wasn't done by Yasuhiko himself, though, correct? No. Uh, I mean, the color pages that he originally did are intact, but the whole thing is colorized digitally, and you can tell a difference. Like, the, the color yeah. gra gradients and all that are, are noticeably different. 
I don't feel like it's strictly necessary, but mm, again, your mood may vary. And if you haven't yeah, heard about this, don't be surprised because Comic Walker never advertises anything, including itself. Do they release? Did they release Gundam San too? I think I saw that. Uh, they might have done a few chapters. I know they did a couple of chapters of Shara's Daily Life. Hmm. Now, what is Comic Walker? Is that a U.S. company, Japanese company? It's Japanese-based. I think it has something to do with Bandai, but it's supposed to be just a digital manga site, like a, a, a mm. storefront in the same way something like Bookwalker is. Okay. And for the longest time, the entire series was available legally online, but it seems that in the last year or so, Comic Walker took everything but the first few chapters down. Yeah, and that really sucks, because there's... Otherwise, there is no digital release for this. Yeah, I'm also glad. You know, I'm glad I bought the physical copies, but it would be great if it was more widely available online for more people to get their hands on. Because if you want to get into Origin, I mean, there and you don't have, you can't borrow anyone's copies. It's going to cost you probably three hundred ish dollars, unless your library has them, which is always a possibility. Oh yes. So definitely check that out if your local library has any, and if they don't vouch for yourself recommend that they do pick up some volumes or all the volumes you'll be surprised how receptive librarians are to pitches like that and sometimes how excited they are too like i was taking out copies of tokyo babylon a few months back and the librarian was really excited she was really into clamp stuff so we talked about it <laughs> and you know so who knows maybe you could get some copies you know can we read some copies for free and i'm curious if it's been reprinted re recently because of course in the years since, Vertical has basically been swallowed up by uh, Kadansha Comics, and I don't know if they've done any reprints under the Kadansha label. I haven't looked. Yeah, if they, if they haven't, I imagine the stock is dwindling over time because enthusiasm for Gundam, especially in the era of rewatch podcasts, not to tout our own horn, but there are bigger <laughs> podcasts out there, and it seems, maybe I'm just on Gundam Twitter too much, but it seems there's a real fervor for Gundam-related material. I figure more and more people are going to be picking them up in the years to come. Oh, especially post Cuckoo's Dolan's Island. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, Cuckoo's Dolan. I mean, man, maybe they should do a reprinting right now for the for the theatrical, the hopeful theatrical release of Cuckoo's Dolan. Like I said before, wrapping up our history segment here, it can't be overstated just how big a deal Origin was in Japan, or rather, still is. For a generation of Gundam fans, Yasuhiko's adaptation is Mobile Suit Gundam. Full stop. I've seen people on Twitter who grew up in Japan or are still in Japan who talk about, yeah, their their dad's really into uh, First Gundam because he grew up with it, but they are really into Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin. They have arguments based on which one is better. It, it's a big deal. Um, it's not, I hate the Star Wars comparison all the time, but I have students who grew up with the prequels and they're very fond of the prequels and they see the franchise through that lens. And I can't help but think that's similar with Origin, even though the the subject matter is, of course, different. But, of course, we have takes. So with that in mind, let's talk about what we thought of the manga. So here's how we're going to structure it. We each have three positive things to say, three things that need improvement. I won't necessarily say negative, but three things that could use improvement for the origin. And, listeners, you all know that we're pretty all very warm on the origin, but that we still have a diversity of takes because I have the takes in front of us, <laughs> and there'll be some interesting conversation. So we'll go like round table style. If we were all in the room, we'd be going you know, around the table telling our takes, which I hope hopefully will make for a lively conversation. But I'll start out just because I have like a, a culmination of small points that wouldn't really stand alone. So I had to like combine them into one point. So if it feels like a cop out, it is. But there are so many small 
edits and additions that make Origin really sing in my mind. It, it benefits so much from revision. Yasuhiko's retelling has a logic and clarity that isn't always present in the original. For example, I'm glad that the Federation now has had mobile suits since before the start of the war. Within the context of the UC timeline, it makes more sense that a hegemonic power such as the Federation would have mass-produced suits. It works better thematically, too, because when you're talking about the military-industrial complex, it makes sense that that industrial complex would have produced military equipment. I'm glad that the white base's journey across the globe is less circuitous and more streamlined. This is a very small point, but it makes for better storytelling. We're not second-guessing whether they're in Seattle or New York, or, or rather, I guess, New York, <laughs> or how they made it across the globe in less than a day. I'm glad that Yasuhiko introduced new personnel on the white base, such as, even though these are kind of forgettable characters, Ensign Magdalena Rossi, Daniel Schoenberg. There's a bunch of background technicians and advisors. It really makes the panels look better when Bright is commanding on the bridge, and there are like a dozen other technicians and advisors like looking at a map with them. It just makes it feel like a military drama. It also makes the white base feel more lived in, too. It makes it feel like a functioning military installation, which it is. I'm also glad there's more connective tissue between events, such as previewing the Zagak at the end of Volume 3, and explaining how Shar was able to breach Jabiro's defenses. I imagine some of this additional material is very... Sub it's all very subjective, whether or not you liked it or not, but I imagine people have some like thoughts about specific incidents and episodes... But for me, the more utilitarian scenes, the shorter scenes that are inserted throughout the volumes really do work for me. It provides that connective tissue that makes the narrative more streamlined. Uh, I, too, was also struck by uh, the sense of geography Yasuhiko brought to this. It's very easy to trace uh, the White Base's journey, you know, down the western coast of America to Jaburo, and then, you know, up over the Atlantic, and then kind of round to get to Odessa. It, it, and the show they basically went the other way around and it was a little less unclear. And yeah, this this did eliminate some storylines. You know, rip to the salt episode. Everyone's favorite. <laughs> uh, what is the name of the cook uh, on the white base? I don't T know. It starts with a T, maybe? Yeah. He he gets he gets a little less uh, screen time, I guess, so to speak. Now, Megan, I know you gotta take in the holster for this one. Oh yes. And for me, I've always been more about kind of the, the human drama of Gundam The Origin. And the biggest thing I appreciate is that every character gets to shine here. It is not just the Amaro and Charso. You know, everybody on the white base gets to show off more of their personality. You know, whether it be in little comic comedic bits in the side. You see that a lot with the, with the orphan trio, especially Kika. It is clear from going back to the show that Yasuhiko loves drawing Kika. She's so funny and she's so cute. But you also just see more moments of drama, more everyday interactions that really goes a long way towards building up these characters as personalities on their own and kind of the, the various relationships between them. And it's also equally true for those within Sion. There's less of a sense of, like, oh, it's just another, not monster of the week, I guess general of the week, opponent of the week as it is in the, the show or the movies. You get a far better sense of the various generals within Xeon, a lot more time with Makuve. Speaking of other characters, Yasuhiko's clearly very interested in. Um, Shar's rotating roundup of various underlings, and in particular, and this struck me uh, during this reread in particular, 
was you get a far better sense of the unique personalities of all the members of the Zabi family, you know, and how Dagwin slowly dawns upon him that he's basically raised a nest of vipers and how this all kind of falls apart and ties into the rise and fall of Zeon itself. Like, Yasuhiko, from the start, as I mentioned before, wanted to bring, want this manga to bring back the focus of Gundam to the people within it and the very human drama going on within the context of the One Year War. And in this format, he can really build upon the characters that were already there along with some of his additional ones, and make them more three-dimensional than ever before, even if it's only in a 2D format. Totally. There's a lot of good small scenes between, like, the white base crew members, particularly the bridge crew, that are scenes that are not featured in the TV show that really make it feel more lived in and more human. I remember there was a scene with Hayato and Ryu yes! doing, doing karate, Judo. which was an original practice. show. Judo, judo, yes. And it's like scenes like that that I really wanted from the show. To be honest, I wanted a little bit more from, from Origin, but like my ideal version of Gundam has like 80% less mobile suit fights, which I know is a heinous thing for a, a mecha <laughs> podcaster to say, and more like bottle episodes on the white base. Like, I don't know, Amro lost his book or something. Let's spend 20 minutes trying to find the book and seeing what misadventures the rest of the white base crew is getting into. But you kind of get that warmth not only from some of these extra scenes, but the way Yasuhiko draws his characters. Yes, and he also kind of dulls the edges of some of the more aggressive characters, like getting mm. into the second half, and because I am like one of the six people who actually gives a shit about Bright and Mariah as a couple in this fandom, just... I'm one of them. Yes! Like, all, all the, the low polyhedron between them and Slager, like he manages... Well, Slager's still an asshole, and he's a really passive-aggressive one at that, but he manages to make him a little more tolerable without completely changing him and he also plays up a lot of that bright my content this is the work that got me shipping them and i was really surprised to learn after reading this and getting in deeper into gundam like oh people don't actually like bright all that much that makes me sad and i'm not the only person who's like this uh, i read an interview with the translator melissa tanaka uh that the mm. reverse thieves podcast did in 2013 and she also talks about how reading this you know she became more of a fangirl of bright than of char Yes, the the Bright Defense Force needs to rise up. I know Bright, it's very difficult to stand for Bright later on, but like as someone who I think I'm still pretty young, like I like for example, whenever I talk about Evangelion, I say I really like everyone watching Evo in their early teens. I saw myself as Shinji, not a surprise. But now I'm in the workforce, now I'm acclimating to new environments. I'm still youngish in my career. I see myself as Masato. Same with Bright, being thrust in an unfamiliar location and forced to do the best that he can. Right. Particularly in First Gundam, yeah. Right, you know, trying to deal with his own shit on top of everything else and keeping everybody alive. That, You know, doing this for a job that does not always reward him for it. But that is a big millennial mood, if you ask me. Now, noted Bright Skeptic, PMC. <gasps> uh, real quick, uh, there's this something I want to touch on. Wait, hold on. Because you mentioned the zombies. We're going to be talking about the zombies constantly, I imagine, during our coverage and whether or not Yasuhiko romanticizes them. I'm in the side right now that I'm really impressed with how restrained he is when it comes to the romanticization of Zeon. The only reason I say that, that's not a slight against Yasuhiko or anything, but it seems that Gundam writers, given the nature of the fandom and just the commercial interests that surround Gundam, sometimes are not very cognizant about how they're framing Zeon soldiers. And I feel like Yasuhiko overall is... I know PMC are going to have some lively debate on this, but overall, I'm pretty happy with it, especially in the manga. Mm -hmm. Now, PMC, uh, Tone for Your Sins, 
Uh, Bright. <laughs> Look, Bright is. I mean, he's he's. I don't know. The problem right now is that uh, I don't know. Bright Bright is just kind of a he's he's a he's a middle manager guy. You know, I wish he was a little more. Uh, I don't know. Active in in what he did. I mean, certainly uh, Bright in Origin. I think is much more personable. Like what? What or- makes Origin fun? I think this is just following up on on Megan's point is that not only do you have all of these moments of interaction in all these different lanes in the white base lane, the Shara lane, the Zabi lane, but you also get to compare and contrast those, which I think really strengthens each of those lanes. It becomes more, you know more than just the sum of its parts when you see how all these different groups interact with each other. Uh, it's 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 good. Is is Bright saved? I don't know. <laughs> it's, well, we'll have to re- revisit that question. Yeah, let's ask Let's ask Hathaway that question. Mm, yeah, right? Oh. We'll, we'll see how the sun feels about Well, let's about wait for it. those movies Happy- to get done first, and then you can talk about that. <laughs> Happy Father's Day, everyone. Mm. <laughs> but no, I, I remember reading it for the first time and thinking he was funny because he was so you know pompous. I, I believe I described him as 19 going on 35. Yeah. But he, he just grew on me over time. I really like how he's drawn in the origin too, much more so than the original show. I could probably say that about every single character in the origin, though, because Yasuhiko's <laughs> drawings look fantastic. Oh yeah. All right, PMC, you're up. I didn't mean to put your back against the wall there. I'm sure you'll no. put my back against the wall with future Rambaral takes. I will. I will. I, will. I look forward to that. Uh, so I'm kind of following up a little bit. You know, we've already mentioned the geographic coherency of the changes to the story. I wanted to sort of build on that because not only is the map simpler and easier to follow i think the manga does a really incredible job of providing a sense of place and the sense of impact of that place in the t- the tv show and i don't know maybe if this is my own uh poisoned brain but i feel like when i'm watching the gundam the tv show I can never quite place. Like, it always feels like we're in like a like wherever DBZ fights take place. Like, oh yeah, especially in those middle chapters in Central Asia, yeah. or wherever they are. Like, wherever we are, I don't know. In contrast, in the manga, and this is especially true, I think, of some of the places where things have been changed up. But it's it is even true in you know even when it comes to things like Garma's fate and hiding in the arena in LA, uh, which yeah. we know is LA. He's hiding. Uh, they hide in the Staples Arena. Yeah. Or yeah. whatever the hell it's called now. Right. Who knows? <laughs> Whoever would have been around in UC Delo 79. Hey, they stick um, around but, long enough they can go to AX. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> anyway. And yeah, and, and so what I would say is that the uh, but like particularly some of the some of the new places, I think the um the two I really wanted to single out were when the Black Tristars attack in like the foothills of the Andes such an incredible sense of mobile suits sweeping down upon you like just really really good action scenes that way uh and then the other one that i would single out and this is certainly a new bit because of how the path is redrawn is the conflict at gibraltar which is just great landmark everyone knows really cool fight lots of um you know and i want to say too that not only am i talking about like frequently in our anime podcasting career, Steven and I have said that mecha battles are better on land than in space. And But I'm not just talking about the geography is good because of how it impacts military strategy and tactics. 
like I, I really do think it provides a personality in the way it's used. The way you have a pile of broken mobile suits at the at the foot of Gibraltar is, or you know, cliffs in the area, uh, just very very powerful for the send off to Sharazaku too. Um, you know, it's, it's an image that's going to stick with me. I, I think even more so than maybe some of the recreated images of uh, you know fights from the TV show. I think there's definitely I, there's some of those single panels I want to like blow up and put on my wall. Like all those gyms, I want that <laughs> on my wall. Yeah, I was trying to think of a location in particular that stuck with me. I think it uh, right before Odessa, so the last fight with the Black Tristar is when they're in Turkey. I, I get the suspicion that Yaz is really into Turkey because you mentioned before that mm. they went there as part of location scouting for Arion. You know, he made a manga set in Turkey, uh, Rebel Sword, and you know. Right before they get to Odessa, there's this fight here at the near at the Capacoa or something like that. It's a notable uh, site, and he really takes advantage of of the geography of the mountains and all these ancient structures and all that. It's really cool looking. All right, so that's our first round of positive takes. But don't worry, we have two more rounds. Megan's going to start us off with round two. All right, now. I have read my fair share of mecha manga over the years as part of my blog, and something I've noticed is that a lot of them tend to fall short even when it comes to portraying the action. Like, a lot of mangaka just really struggle to capture conflict at that sort of scale, both literal and metaphorical, in a way that is both visually thrilling and easy for a reader to follow. Like, there are some exceptions out there. I mean, if you can get your hands on five-star stories, Mamoru Nagato is incredible when it comes to just the sheer scale of battles in five-star stories. But, you know, you also have situations like um, the original Evangelion manga, uh, the Sadamoto one. You know, there's another situation of a mega manga made by the show's uh, character designer. But Sadamoto was not an animator. At least, I don't think he did much animation work uh, before he did that manga. And, you know, he's competing with Gainax at their peak. So, while the Evangelion manga does not look bad by any stretch, you know he's up against some tough competition. Whereas, but with Gundam The Origin, it's one of the few exceptions to this that I've ever found, certainly in English, because not only does it benefit from Yasuhiko's skill as an artist, but his background as an animator and a director. Like, he approaches every battle, big and small, with a very cinematic eye. And a lot of them, like, the panels are laid out in a way as if he was still drawing storyboards. Like, you could use them as storyboards, practically. Uh, he also, uh, he's mentioned before that he uses paneling. He thinks about it in the same way you think about the length of a shot, whereas, like, bigger, longer panels represent, like, a longer, more language shot, whereas uh, a shorter sequence of them is more like kind of a, a quick cut. But even at Origin's most chaotic moments, he never loses track of the focus of any given scene. You could always tell what suit is fighting whom, and... Through the use of his drawing and his brushwork, he really captures the power and the fluid motion of these battles. You know, the, the movement of a, a beam saber strike, or the explosive force of a blast, or just all the destruction that comes in the wake of these battles. And it's all the more remarkable when you remember that Yasuhiko is doing this in analog. That he, you know, he's not doing this with a pen or digital tool. He's doing this entirely with brushes, and he's still capturing just such fine and dynamic detail and he gives it all just a sense of life that few mangaka I have found before or since can really capture totally agree especially on the points about action I have 
when I was really into manga in my high school days, I, I often found myself having trouble tracking action on the page, be it a mecha manga or not. I remember having a hard time with Trigun Maximum. The action just didn't land with me, and it, it felt very chaotic. For some reason, that that, that stands out in my mind. Yeah. It's a very distinct memory. Uh, from what I've seen of Night Out, yeah, that is not uncommon for him. He, like, he's good with poses and good with character designs, but he, he can be very chaotic on the page. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought that because that like memory has stuck with me, but I've never actually talked to anyone about it. And I, I felt like really like at the time when I was reading in high school, I was like, man, do I just not know how to read manga because none of this action is tracking for me? It's an art. Like the, the way of, of paneling and layout of that, it is an art unto itself. And I agree. Mecha manga is particularly egregious when it comes to that. I've read a, a good amount of mecha manga and often... I find that when the mangaka can handle scope, or like understands and pays attention to scope, in particular how the mechas are in relation to the environment they're around or they're in, it, it tends to work better, especially when the conflict's a little more localized. It makes it seem less chaotic. And Yasuhiko is really good with stuff like that. All right, PMC. You're up. You're the first person to bring up Shark. I know, I know. I, I feel like I'm stealing a lot of thunder here by by getting into this early, but... I think at this point, now having read all of the volumes, Origin Shar is absolutely definitive for me. I've never really been comfortable, especially with TV Shar, especially with the back half of TV series Shar, because he basically comes across as an opportunistic fail son at some <laughs> point. Like, we never really get a sense of why he does what he does. Uh, and so he just sort of seems to be taking opportunities as they come up, as new types arise, as you know, other things arise. Whereas our origin Shar, especially with the benefit of the prequel information, but even without that, you know, you get a pretty clear sense of what he believes that he is. He, with his ego, is destined and fated for, and how he you know works hard but also is unable to uh to deal with i guess conflict or a lack of success at certain turns uh like the reading origin completely redefined the the sword fight at the sword duel at the end in about a coup for me uh, but it also you know it further clarifies his relationship with, with amaro and lala uh it also positions char and sail i think as as foils for each other when you you know as i already mentioned in regard to to uh to megan's first point about comparing the you know the white base interactions track versus Shar and Pal's track. That you you know you clearly see how they interact with each other and you know who, who matters to whom. Um, so this is just like I, I'm I, I you know I'm gonna, probably going to be uh, importing this Shar into any future things that you know that we're dealing with. You know if we're, if we're watching Zeta or or Shar's counterattack or whatever the case might be. Like I can definitely see me being like, yeah, this is I need the Shar who gets super mad when you tell him he's not a new type. Shark is real mad if you beat him. I'll have my thoughts about Char later, because I'm about to be buried <laughs> under uh, the, the weight of this excellent criticism that both PMC and Megan are going to present to you all in the audience. But I, I have some reasons, too, because my mind might be a little poisoned by the OVA already. Look, but, half uh, of this fandom is nothing but various takes on Char. That's true. Um, so my second point was, and we've talked about this a bit before, but it really comes out in the origin, is Yasuhiko's concern for historicism and the attention he pays to the social and political tensions that come to a boil in the years leading up to 0079 really elevates the storytelling. 
In particular, I think the three prequel volumes, five through seven, benefit the most from the sense of urgency. Yasuhiko goes out of his way to spotlight the horrendous environmental conditions on Earth that have caused massive migrations of people, which you don't really hear of in the uh, TV show, which in turn instigates the Federation to forcefully emigrate millions of people to space to maintain their own power and protect the interest of the property class. These issues are only vaguely alluded to or not even mentioned in First Gundam. I'm thinking the disappointing refugee arc in the beginning of the show. In addition, exposition for the Duchy of Xeon was sorely needed in First Gundam, because otherwise it just reads as lost causism. And Yaz manages to chronicle the Zabi's rise to power without romanticizing them. We're going to have a lot to say about this later on. But I think, by and large, he does as good as he could with the Zabi family. And don't worry, Gar. I know there's a lot of Garma fans out there, especially with Garma in the origin. We'll have plenty to say about Garma oh, yes. um, in, in the future. And I, I, I got to be honest, I'm a big fan of, not a big fan, but I'm a fan of like how Garma is portrayed in the origin. A lot of fun. I wanted some more Garma Shar stuff from any prequel material, and we certainly get it here. Again, speaking of characters that Yasuhiko is clearly fond of, because if I recall correctly, Garma might not even be present in Tomino's um, Mobile Suit Gundam novels, or if he is, he's very minor. But Yasuhiko clearly likes this character. He clearly likes his dynamic with, with him and Char. And oh, how he plays it up. <laughs> <laughs> Some very steamy scenes there. Now, also, I think the backstory, even though it's not extensive, on Ziamzum Daikun is necessary in the way in which Yas shows how fascist powers can twist ideology to serve their own purposes is timely and thoughtful. Yes, even the fact and that honest- we see Zeon Daikun. Yeah, that's very true. I, I kind of wish we got a little bit more. And, he, of course, he's not like a perfect, idealized revolutionary either. He has his own flaws and faults, which is which is apparent in the writing. But I still think that's good because it's showing him as human. And I was fascinated to learn a bit more. Yeah, if anything, he's a very manic figure. And you can almost see a little bit of that manicness in his son uh, towards the end. Very true. But in these middle chapters, my eyes were glued to the pages. Like, I was reading maybe one volume a, a week or so, but when I hit, like, volume six, it was, like, one volume a day. That's just how voraciously I was consuming it and working through it. Of course, I'm a bit biased there because I just watched First Gundam, so, of course, I was moving through the retread and the retelling a little bit more slowly. And once I hit new content, I was a little bit more eager to push on. And I slowed down a bit as I worked my way to the end. But these middle chapters were really strong. And I wasn't expecting that because people are super tepid and cool on the OVAs. But I was really happy with the prequel work done in the manga. There is a tragic momentum to the events leading up to the outbreak of the one-year war. Like, you know as a reader, provided that you've watched First Gundam or know anything about Gundam, exactly what's going to happen. But the, there's a, the tragic momentum that propels these events forward is really compelling to me. And you could tell Yas knows his history because if you have any historical background, you could see parallels in our history. And that's just fascinating to draw connections between. All right, PMC, take us to round three. Yeah, so I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill in and do the, I guess, the, the military otaku bit here, which is to say that the, the subplot involving... Like how the mobile suits came along and came to be featured so prominently in the One Year War, I think what I enjoyed about it is that it is—it's more than just filling in plot details. It's more than just saying, "Ah, yes, all the characters you already knew were in the same room together, and that's how they all came to pilot mobile suits." I think what's helpful is that it—we know from the TV show that 
because of Minofsky particles and the, and the jamming of radar, mobile suits are effective in, in close range combat. What I think really helps here is that we get a sense in terms of tactics of the hierarchy of mobile suits and why the Zaku's so outranked the obsolete Federation mobile suits and why the Gundam is different. Uh, and it really, um, it, it, eventually it kind of falls by the wayside when we start getting to some of the later uh, Zeon suits. Nothing can justify mobile armors. Well, not even Yasuhiko can do that. And I understand it's hard. <laughs> no one can justify those. But uh, but in terms of the early story, and especially in the prequel material, getting this clear understanding that you know I can articulate, it, it really puts the narrative and the um, verisimilitude of the narrative front and center rather than any... I mean, I know the new mobile suits are still very good for toys and models, but it feels like you know the story is cohesive in a way that makes sense. You know, it's not just like Gundanium Alloy. Look, Yasuhiko did what he could with some of the goofier suits. I mean, he did his best to make the Sakurella look cool. He did, really, though. You're right. You're 100% right. I was a bit, I was a fan of this stuff too. I'm 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 less warm. I feel like such like a like a normie Gundam fan by saying you know I like the Zeon stuff more than the Federation. I'm cooler on the some of the backstory we get on the Federation characters because I think a lot of it's unnecessary. But the Temray stuff is good, and the political and socioeconomic ang- the political and social angle Yasuhiku takes is smart. Um, we also see that when they go back to side six later in the series because I feel like the political commentary is more apparent than it was in the show and i think the overall work is better because of that now i'm up now uh my last bit of praise might seem obvious like a, a well dumb moment because it's my comment here is basically i like gundam the origin the manga because it is a manga um but hear me out real quick so ryusuke hikawa a japanese anime critic that i've mentioned a few times before writes quote because manga readily permits rereading being plainer, unlike animation, links between related parts of the story are easier to tease out, end quote. And having watched my fair share of anime, particularly mecha anime, I find this ring so true. I feel like I have more of a command and understanding of the material because I can simply flip back to an earlier page for clarification. And not to mention on its own, Origin is a remarkably streamlined adaptation. Yasuhiku took out the unnecessary and long-in-the-tooth bits, no longer do I have to sit through a succession of 10-minute battle scenes with recycled animation that feature characters with unclear motivations. All that is ironed out, and I think Origin is a much better work because of it. I know like we're all leading up to the hot take that, well, Origin is actually better than First Gundam. Sometimes I think that question's like a false dichotomy. I think they're both valuable and are both in conversation with one another. But yes, when I think now, I'll, I'll say it right now, when I think of my ideal mobile suit Gundam experience for me it is the origin manga ditto and this is something I commented on when I reviewed this on my own site that he you know he has the benefit not just of hindsight but basically having all the time and space Yasuhiko needs to really expand on things anything he wants you know he's not limited to 22 minutes per episode he's not limited to 50 episodes per season you know he could go on as long as he wanted and it really benefits from that PMC I have to ask you at this time is the origin your ideal version of 0079 <laughs> yes is it is it a video game 
no, please, please no, 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 no. I'm sorry. It just last night. Okay, uh, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess. Last night, I, reco- I know where this is going. I recorded a a deathless run of Gundam 0079, The War for Earth. So I'm just thinking oh, a lot about no. that game right now. <laughs> that it, don't worry. That is not my ideal. Char chins the bull. The chin comment is not my <laughs> ideal version <laughs> of. <laughs> I would love to see on? a Yasuhiko design of the chinned Char. I mean, well, well, you know, I hopefully he'll listen to this and he will honor that request. Uh, it seems <laughs> to have ever- its fans. That game, I, you know, it, it does have its fans over, especially in the Kuso gay crowd, the bad game crowd, ah. quote unquote, bad game crowd. So, no, the origin is is definitive, and, and I think it's for all the reasons that we're talking about. It just it gives the character stuff that we that we want to see. That's just and it's it's good. Now, Megan, you get the final word on good stuff, good qualities that uh, Gundam: The Origin embodies. Now, my last point, my good point, actually relates to one of PMC's earlier ones that I too was also very struck by the way Yasuhiko expands upon Char and how he posits Char and Sela against one another as foils. Like one of my frustrations, one of many, uh, watching Zeta Gundam and Char's counterattack and all that is how those works don't really let the viewer get into Char's head to try to explain who he is and why is he doing the things he does and like just what's going on in his head. But with the origin, Yasuhiko, you know, takes that opportunity and runs with it to finally explain what makes Char tick. What turned him into the person we meet when he attacks Side 7 at the beginning of the story. Now, this is something we're going to talk about a lot more when you get into the OVA, but, you know, one of the common criticisms of Origin, and that flashback arc in particular, is that Char comes off a little bit uber-minchy with all his various, like, fighting prowess and achievements. I've seen people criticize him, like, oh, he, he shouldn't have been able to do all this much, you know, before he, he got into the army and all that. But I never quite understood that myself, because Yaz always makes it clear all throughout this manga, that for all of Char's achievements, all that's behind it is a self-made sociopath, just this hollow shell of a person. You know, the Char we meet in this story is the culmination of a boy who never learned to cope with the loss of his mother, a boy whose outlook was poisoned by Jinbaral, Rambaral's dad just pouring all sorts of poison paranoia into his ear, along with Caswell's obligations as Daekun's son to, you know go forth in his stead into, you know, an impressionable child's ears. You know, this is the same boy who just let his anger and his need for revenge for his mother just subsume everything about him right down to his true name and identity. And, you know, once we get to the point where he's the Red Comet, he's just nothing but this placid mask of a man whose every achievement and every relationship is calculated, whether it is to bring down those who wound his inflated ego, as PMC mentioned in some of those later parts of the story, or achieve his goals, you know, whether that's revenge against the zombies or towards the end when Char just basically becomes a new type evangelist who needs to prove himself to be the truest new type because he is Daekun's son and therefore he has to be the best new type. 
it's an interpretation of the character that I find not only very compelling, but very tragic in its own way. And it's an interpretation that fits very snugly with the versions we see in those later works. Like, it fits with what we know and understand of him when he's Quattro, and when he's the leader of Neo Zeon and Char's counterattack. Like, it becomes this grand, tragic arc. And in contrast, he also makes a point that in contrast, Sela has undergone a lot of the same trauma, and then some, that Char went on under, but she did not lose her heart or her humanity in the process. You know, maybe it's just due to how much young, so much younger she was that she didn't really grasp what was going on. Maybe it's because she was not seen as the heir to her father's legacy, and so she didn't have these obligations piled upon her. I mean, that's one of, one of the advantages of not being the eldest. But she's the only one of the two siblings who was actually able to grow up into a person. She is the only one who is able to forge genuine connections and fight for something she believes in. And ultimately, she's the only one of the two who's really able to come to terms with her past, not just as Salem Us, but as Artesia Rem Dekun. And I particularly like towards the very end when she she finally reveals herself as Lady Artesia and kind of creates that chaos at Albao Coup. And that, that is truly her, like, coming to terms, not just with her present, but her past. And in that sense, she's just as much of a foil for her brother as Amuro is. And it's, it's just really good stuff. Yeah, I, I think that, I was just going to say, that finale sequence is also really good to call out in terms of, you know, establishing how Sela is, is a foil that she, you know, does in fact come to terms with. It's not just, it's not just, oh, I'm going to keep on this mask forever. It is, no, this is, I am a full person now. And also that, you know, she stopped, she realizes, like, I'm never going to get my brother back. He, he, this is who he is now. And she starts to turn against him, where Char never really gets over, like, why aren't you still a little girl? Why are you fighting? Get away from here. You're not allowed to do this. I'm your brother. I say so. And I didn't really get into this earlier, though it kind of relates. I do appreciate how much Yasuhiko tries to uh, correct some of the, uh, the the latent sexism of the original show. Like, you see this with all the female characters. With Sela, with Mirai, with Frau, with Cassilia, with Lala. There's no, Sela, you can't pilot the Gundam moment. And as someone who's a bit sensitive to sexism in Gundam, I appreciate that. Oh, without a doubt. Completely agree. And I, I do like your take on Char. You basically aethered my take, which I'm going to give a bit later on, because I took the normie-ass route. But I, <laughs> I'll have some thoughts about that. But it was definitely well said. But I definitely agree with you on... It made me like reevaluate my own take, but also definitely Sayla, too. Um, very well said. All right, so we're going to talk about the bad. And again, the bad, a little strong. But what could be improved? Because overall, I think we're all very positive on the origin. Agreed. But Megan, kick us off here. What 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 do you think Mike what could have used what could where is there room for improvement in the origin? I, I did struggle a little bit with this because I like this series so much, but one thing I've noticed of criticisms on the manga over the years, I've seen people take issue with Melissa Tanaka's translation from time to time, mostly because she didn't preserve every single so-called iconic line as it was on the show. Like, I, I know people who are still mad that she didn't, you know, do the misfortunes of your birth line exactly as it was in the show, and I'm just like, whatever. 
It was also kind of interesting to read that interview I mentioned earlier, because she notes that she was not a Gundam fan before this, so she was coming into this kind of fresh. So she didn't have any of those expectations. Like, if she struggled with anything, it was mostly, like, the military jargon, like, the various ranks, because she couldn't even necessarily refer to, like, the original show or movies or all that, because there are changes in ranks uh, between those materials, and also because some of those ranks are terms that are still used in, like, the Japanese Navy, and some are not. So, just additional research complications. But I've never been bothered by that. I don't think, you know... I'm not attached to those lines. I don't feel like you have to reproduce them to get the Gundam experience. Now, what I do take some exception to is some of the choices made with the lettering. And it's kind of hard to tell who's responsible for this because Vertical's release does not specify a letterer. There's only the translator and I think some production staff. And the only related credits to it for this in ANN's encyclopedia entry are for the Viz release. So that doesn't really count. But that being said, whoever was responsible for it had a bad habit of putting like big panel-spanning exclamations and occasionally uh, with the word balloons, making them read right to left in the same way that the page order goes. Now, this is not the norm in manga lettering, then or now, and it always kind of threw me out of the moment when it happened. I feel a lot better now. I was like, do they really do this? Is this a thing? Not really. Okay. Do you know if Melissa Tanaka is still a Gundam fan after interacting with the Gundam community online? I have no idea. I'd have to look up look up what she's worked on since then. <laughs> I can only imagine um, the questions she's been asked or the the critiques she's read online of her work. I'm, I'm, I I like the translation. There there are times when it's a bit stiff, and sometimes the word she uses is a bit I feel like awkwardly placed. Like sometimes it's like. The word choice is a little archaic for the rest of the uh, like the dialogue bubble, but overall, I think it's a very, remarkably strong translation. Yeah, and I don't envy the letterers because there's a lot of narrow vertical bubbles in this, and that's always a trick for them to work with to make the dialogue literally fit into it in a way that is not awkward to read. All right, PMC, you're up. All right, so us with your first negative take. Well, so I'm I'm coming back to here. I, I think I'm I guess I'm pushing back against something. Although I, I'm couching this in the idea of me being a, a novice manga reader, there are, so I mean single pages. You know, I'm flipping flipping right to left. I had no problem. Uh, there was, I mean, I, I say action here. I mentioned action scenes, but I would say generally, uh, especially you know, panels of dialogue where if it was a situation where you had a grid of panels, I, I found that there were times when it was um, column first and times when it was row first. And I wasn't always sure. Mm. I mean, I could figure it out of context. I could guess. I would, and I think I usually got it right. But when you're when you're struggling to know whether you should be going down the page or or you know or to the middle and then you know and then back over, like you know you're reading uh, lines of text, um, it definitely takes you out of it. Uh, and that was something that I had difficulty with as a novice. I mentioned for you know again pages that had a a grid of panels, uh, and I I think it was usually you could kind of tell based on how the the panels met in the middle what direction you're supposed to go and that was my i'm perhaps more, more experienced readers can tell me but i think it definitely caused me to have difficulty sometimes following uh both action and conversations um i don't know if that's a thing specific to this or if this is just manga and i got a deal yes and no 
I mean, that's a fair answer, right? Because I would have to bring up specific examples for us to really probably get down to it. Yeah, and it's hard to describe that in an audio-only medium. Right. Yeah. You'll get a better feel for it the more manga you read. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to present out the normie-ass take on Char. Keep in mind, though, I started watching the OVA, and I feel like my reading might be a bit poisoned by how Char is depicted, at least in the first few episodes of the OVA. But I, I did... Parts of Shara's characterization did cause some friction with me, particularly in the prequel volumes, less so when you look at Origin as a whole. Because I like how Shara is more of an opportunist in First Gundam seeking revenge for his father. He's very conniving, self-serving, and oftentimes inept. I will, I will not vouch for the consistency of his characterization, but I do enjoy how um, he's depicted in that way in First Gundam. Um, the show isn't afraid to show Shara fall on his ass. <laughs> I feel like in the prequel bits that Char is very much a wunderkin who alters the trajectory of history at will. I really didn't like how it was basically him who instigated the one-year war by urging Garma to lead an uprising against the Federation forces stationed on Munzo. Or Munzo, I can't remember how you pronounce it. Um, In these chapters, he's basically Edmund Dantes, who concocts elaborate plans and pulls them off without so much as working up a sweat. The deal with... um, What's the Asnable's name? The uh, the guy in the Texas colony. I think it's with the son who the looks like Char. Char Asnel's dad. I think it's Roger. I might be misremembering that. See, now I just want to call him Tom Asnel after a wonderful <laughs> guest. But of course, Tom Asnel um, was not the character in question. I feel like that it's it's it, it reads as very capital R romance, like I'm reading the County of Monte Cristo. But yet everything else is so grounded around it. And I know Char's characterization is handled differently the further you get into the manga series, but that plot beat was a little too contrived for my taste and basically the 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 bit where he like basically kicks off the one year war ran roughshod against what I was expecting because everyone is so down to earth and realistically portrayed and I, I, I do agree with Megan's take that Yas ultimately does right by him especially in the later volumes but in the prequel bits his depiction seems very commercially driven and again I, I feel like that's amped up excessively in the OVAs because that's the snapshot of Char we get at least from my understanding of the six episodes. Yeah, and again, I, I didn't have so much of a problem with it because, again, you know, Yaz always stresses uh, Shar's negative qualities. Like, yeah, it's easy to be a wonder kid if you basically just reject everything about your identity and become whoever you need to be to achieve your goals. All right, PMC, piss some people off. You know, the Ramba fans are strong online. Rambaral was bad in the TV show, and he is worse in the origin. Really? I this is this is my take. I am I was unsympathetic to his character arc in the original, and I think in here. So we mentioned already a little bit about you know the concern over romanticizing Zeon, and you know the time that we spend with the Zabi family. I, I really appreciated the time that we spent with the Zabi family because I feel like I am able to you know track where each of them goes uh, in the build up to the one year war and it's uh, you know in the aftermath of the one year war and how they they all end up whereas with Rambaral I feel like um I I understand why the zombies treat Rambaral the way that they do I think it makes a lot of sense I feel like I get their their machinations but I really do not get why Rambaral sort of like persists so many of the Rambaral scenes, and especially this includes honestly Haman and uh, Nyotachi and the other the other members of their team, 
it's just it feels like they're um like knockoff Lupin uh, bits or something. <laughs> you know, like oh haha, we we took a gun tank and we talked some people and they're driving us downtown so that we can you know make this funny getaway. Uh, but like these characters, you know, the characters who ultimately are complicit with the zombie family, you know, and go off to you know seek vengeance for uh, for Garma Zabi, et cetera, et cetera. So like I. I I, I cannot make sense of their character arc. Like this feels to me like the worst sort of prequel thing where you're like, actually all these folks spent time together in a nightclub, uh, you know, on, in a space colony. It's uh, the sort of um, the adult version of Final Fantasy VIII's orphanage. <laughs> you know what? I-, I can totally see where you're coming from. Cause if we want to talk about a character who was made cooler for commercialization, yeah, let's look at Rambo Rao who here is cooler and more handsome than ever and punches dudes real good. Yeah, like he's got like he's just a fighter, and he's like, and he's constantly, uh, you know, talking. I think a, a big game when it comes to his concerns about, you know, killing whole space colony populations, you know, things like that. Like he 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 says the right things, but he never, rarely does the right things. So I'm gonna say oh, so I'm gonna save some of my rail takes for later because I don't altogether disagree with PMC's take. Like I have issue with like why is Ramba sticking around? There's a way you can write that, but I feel like that's not present in both the origin and first Gundam. But I am warmer on Ramba's characterization in the origin than I am in first Gundam. And so I'll save that for like when we actually get into the nitty gritty mm, sure. episodes. But I definitely look forward to yeah. talking with PMC and our guest. Megan, you might even be on those episodes. I'm not sure all the episodes that Ramba features in. I look forward to further discussion on that. So if you're thinking that's going to be a Ramba hate parade for the duration of Giant Robot FM's coverage, not necessarily true. But I, I will say I was not happy with his characterization in First Gundam. I am warmer on it in Origin. All right, so I'm up now. So take negative take number two. So over the course of the 12 volumes, there are moments when I feel the luxury of hindsight hurts the writing in these moments, I feel the dialogue is a little too stiff and rote, which is at odds with how warm and relatable Yas's characters usually are. Also, sometimes it feels as if the characters are blessed with an incredible amount of hindsight and foresight, which produces some very mechanical exchanges. There's a bit at the end of Volume 4 with Sela and Char. They're in the caves in Jaboro, and I feel like they're just checking off a laundry list of things they have to say because they haven't seen each other in a while. And I also think it was a mistake for Tachi to tip off Sela about the existence of Char. I get the dramatic stakes behind it, but I feel like that wasn't necessary. And I kind of like how the conversation in First Gundam is shrouded in a bit more mystery. And I feel like there are similar scenes in Origin like that, where it feels like sometimes the characters have seen First Gundam, because it makes their, their dialogue seem a little less authentic. These are small points overall, but since I was so warm on Origin, it was difficult to find points that I um, like bounced off of, and this is one of them. You know what? I can agree with you when it comes to the, the Tai Chi. You're like, hey, do you know your brother's still alive and he's related to this Char dude? And she's like, what? As for that scene in the Caves of Jaburo, I don't know, I didn't take so much exception to it because it's also clearly being set up as a parallel to their confrontation at their childhood home on Texas Colony. Mm. And God, I love that scene because it's just Sailor laying into her brother, you know, basically telling him everything that happened when you went away and you stood by and did nothing and now you preach at me about new types like an asshole. <laughs> Justice for Sailor. Justice for Sailor in that scene. Yeah, the, the I mean the arc of the Char Sela encounters 
I think you're right. Starts off a little because it feels like it's almost just, it's almost like they have to meet up once so they can have that more neutral tepid encounter before we get to the delicious Texas encounter. Um, but you know, it might be one of those. It might be one of those situations where I'm willing to to you know give it a pass because of the payoff. Yeah, it's a very minor complaint on my part. But I needed something. All right, Megan, you're up. Take number two. Now, I. What I'm about to say, I cannot say with any absolute certainty. I've not seen any interview suggesting uh, this, but I strongly suspect that Yasuhiko got a mandate, whether it's from the magazine editors or somebody else higher up on the food chain, that each new chapter of Origin needed an action sequence, regardless if it was there in the original show or not. Now, I say this, it's not that any of these action sequences are badly made. I mean, they're made with the same level of craft as anything else in the manga, and that they don't make sense within context. It's just that sometimes they can feel a little bit tacked on during some of the less battle-oriented moments. And the one that comes to my mind is early on when Amuro is going to meet his mother at the refugee camp. Because while that is happening, and he has the conflict with the Sion soldiers there, you know, uh, Kai and I think Sela go out to try to collect him because oh no we gotta get going but oh no there's some Sion fighters coming after us and again it was not a badly done scene but it's also felt a little extraneous yeah I feel like I have a feeling he got that note from his editor too I imagine most any editor presiding over any mecha series probably requires at least one action set piece per serialization for better or for worse i think origin is better like i kept asking when i was watching first gundam for like bottle episodes or episodes that didn't have the required 10 minute battle scenes and i origin gives me a little bit of that but i I had the same complaint as well pmc do you have anything to add you know i i feel like um i don't know none none of the battle scenes really stuck out to me i think with the uh just maybe to respond specifically to the one moment you mentioned with the the, the like placement of battle around uh, the Amuro mother reunion that was also something that was kind of scrambled in the movies compared to the TV show so I exist in a permanent fog of war when it comes to battles <laughs> around uh, around Amuro's mother uh, you know I don't know justice for Kamaria is my stance ditto same happy mother's day everyone yeah happy mother's day <laughs> All right, now I'm up with uh, kicking off our final round, uh, third round of quasi-negative takes here. Yasuhiko's desire to fill in all the gaps occasionally hinders the storytelling in my mind. The Dolzel and Maniva scene, which we totally did not need. Dolzel meeting his future wife. Also, I did not like that scene at all. Very awkward power dynamics on display. Mm -hmm. And Yasuhiko is really usually good with how he corrects um, as best he can Tomino's gender essentialism, but I feel like this scene was really not needed and also made me very uncomfortable, too. Yeah, knowing that Xenia is one of his former students is a little weird. Although, I did like the scenes of, like, of Dozel and Xenia and Mineva interacting. Like, if there is anything close to a decent zombie, yeah, Origin's interpretation of Dozel is it. Because, you know, he's he's so he's so very much a peacekeeper. He just wants his family to be happy. And once his siblings have gone too far and it's just all about the scheming and politicking between them after uh, Garma's death and Daegwin kind of goes in decline, he focuses a lot more on his family. It's like, I'm going to protect this family at least and we're going to be happy. Which makes it all the more tragic when the inevitable happens. Yeah. 
All right, so while I'm warm on the Zabi's backstory get, the exposition on Amaro, Kai, and Mirai feels tacked on, commercially driven, and a bit contrived. Particularly when, like, Kai shows him, like, do we really need this? It's that classic Star Wars complaint, like, how do all these characters know each other? And it makes sense that Kai would know Amaro, because they're both on the space colony at the same time, but I feel like I got nothing out of the storytelling in that regard. Oh, you didn't like the scene where, you know, Kai, who's such a punk in that scene, he's such a little <laughs> bastard, where they, they sneak out into the construction zone? Not my favorite scene. I feel like, the, I like Mirai a lot. I feel like the Mirai prequel stuff was also unnecessary. It just, there's too many connections between the institutions and the characters. I like the Temray stuff, which also makes it so that Amuro kind of has to make a guest appearance, and he needs to. It's Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin. Amuro Ray has to make an appearance. And he is very restrained, Yasuhiko is, how much Amuro there is in the story, but I feel like it's a little too much. I did appreciate actually seeing Temray as a parent, even though Temray is a terrible parent, because he basically treats Amuro like a feral cat. Just like he shows up at home like once a week and like, well, he isn't dead yet. Here's some food. I gotta go. Bye. And meanwhile, Amuro has spent the 10th day in a row in his room, <laughs> in his underpants, looking at a computer, barely eating. Amuro, please get mental health help. Happy Father's Day, everyone. <laughs> I definitely wondered about the Mirai parts, because I, I feel like the Amaro and Kai bits, I you know, I think we're successful in giving us some some background for the characters. Whereas the Mirai parts, I really expected some uh I guess some information on the you know, the connection or conflict with her father. We never I don't feel like I remember getting that from these bits. Uh it, it was mostly just traveling with her father meant that she happened to show up in a bunch of places at the at the right time to have you know oh isn't it funny that they ran into each other you know prequel moments yeah i mean as good as this to you actually see mr yashima before he passes away because he's already gone by the time the show actually starts and get a sense of like who he is yeah i, I would have liked to see a little more of like what their actual re family relationship was like as father and daughter all right megan you're up take final take of the podcast hit us with it okay so I'm not gonna lie, the flashback arc started to drag for me once the One Year War actually got started. And I recognize that a lot of this is due to my own biases as a manga reader. I do not generally care for extended battle scenes without a lot of dialogue, which probably goes a long way to explaining why I don't care for a lot of shonen manga. And the longer these battles go on, the more my eyes tend to glaze over and the faster I start skimming through the pages. So once it gets around to, like, the Battle of Loam, this is where it starts to happen. And it doesn't help that it's combined with the veritable clusterfuck of all the various allegiances and schemes that are going on while this battle is happening. And I honestly started to check out. Like, to the point that I was almost kind of glad that we went back to present day, uh, so to speak, in Volume 8. Until I realized that they're in Belfast, which meant going through Miharu's story. I'm, all, I'm glad the Mihara story... I'm always nervous that the Mihara story is going to get cut from everything we watch. Every Gundam revision, I'm like, I'm surprised to show up in Gundam Movie 2. I'm very happy. Even it's very tragic. It's some of my favorite bits of in the first Gundam. I'm glad it's preserved here in Volume Yeah, eight. it's it's retold really well here. I say this not because I don't like the Mihara arc, just because it's really sad. Yeah, particularly in both... It's it, I think it's, it's handled pretty... By 0079 standards, it's, ha it's handled remarkably well in First Gundam, but it's handled equally as well, if not better, in the origin. Yeah, I guess the only thing I would say is that I, I think I was benefited 
for for Battle of Loom, especially because I feel like maybe ship combat is more difficult to convey in a, in a manga format. But somewhere rattling around in the back of my skull is the time I watched Igloo, which really always helps me visualize oh the Battle boy. of Loom and make it make it a little Whoa, more... Whoa, that's a revelation. Yeah. I didn't know you've seen Igloo. <laughs> so actually, that helps me kind of visualize it much better. And uh, so I, I think that just sort of maybe supplemented my experience reading the Battle of Loom. Like, man, if you could watch MS Igloo and not fall asleep, that alone is achievement. Types in Daily Mecha Doc. I haven't done anything from Igloo. I'll correct that this week. I agree with you, Megan, though. I'm really warm on the prequel stuff. I started to lose a little steam with Loom. The extended battle scenes definitely did me in there. And I love ship-to-ship combat. It's my jam. But that definitely works better for me in an animation format. Yeah, like, I can handle that when it's animating, you know, whether in Gundam, whether in Legend of the Galactic Heroes. And I get it. They're not going to skip over the Battle of Loom. It's kind of an important thing in the one-year war. It, I just didn't care for that part. All right, PMC. You're up. Last one. So before I said Rambaral is bad and Origin Ramba is worse, here I'm saying TV series Mukuve is good and Origin Mukuve is good, then bad? I was very confused by this character's arc. Uh, initially, he shows up, actually kind of in what we were just discussing, he becomes part of the Antarctic Treaty events, among other things. And I think that's a great, that's a fantastic deployment of Mukuve, uh, that he's introduced as this member of Zeon who's kind of obsessed with uh, with Earth elements, and that that's why he becomes you know part of the of commanding forces on uh, on Earth for for Zeon. Um, but the the way Origin handles the sequence around the you know the betrayal of Elrond. Uh, that it's really Revel who sniffs it out instead of Amaro. I was kind of looking forward to seeing that depicted in manga format, and of course, it, you know, it doesn't pan out that way. Uh, but that was fine. I think what really threw me for a loop, though, was that I do not believe that TV series Mikuve would sacrifice himself under any reason. I do not think he would voluntarily do that. Uh, so that reconciling that with Origin Mikuve was was hard for me to follow. I I think. Origin Makuve is much harder on himself for the failure of his plot to destroy the big tray. But I still like because I think what I think my problem then is that Origin Makuve, it's implied, has some kind of honor system, yeah, which does not jibe with TV series Makuve, who is absolutely on the first ship out of here. I guess I didn't take exception to it because I haven't seen the TV show yet. But yeah, I, I will concede that Odessa, for all the buildup, is a, a little underwhelming. It's just like there's all this buildup to when it's going to happen, and then you see Makufe and his gun, and he's like, God damn it, I fucked up. Nothing to do. Time to commit Harakiri in the bay. Yeah, I feel like that time is spent with the Battle of Gibraltar. That's the real set piece there. To be fair, though, I mean, the, the Battle of. Um... Odessa's like a wet fart in the TV show too. Ah. I know there's a lot of budgetary constraints, but like not much happens in the TV show. Yeah, I mean, I think with the Battle of Odessa in the TV show, what what really sells it is that the battle is over before it's begun because Amaro un- accidentally uncovers this betrayal plot. He's the one who sort of uh, causes Elrond to show show his uh, his hand, and it's it's. I mean, you're right. The Battle of Odessa itself is not much anywhere in, in any media, but I, I think it's uh, it's effective in the TV show that they're able to to do that and to you know, we learn more about Amuro through that. So 
I guess my point here is yeah, I'm sort of bemoaning the mustachioed villain Mukuve and you know the uncover uncovering of his schemes and his response to that. I'm mostly just sad we did get to see like more the of the Gion because I like the Gion and I like the way Yasuhiko draws the Gion. Yeah, cause, yeah, right. I mean, the other consequence of this too is that you know, in, of course, in the TV show, the Gion shows up uh, in Texas and in, in you know de- desecrated Texas, which is just like normal Texas. Oh, and <laughs> <laughs> sorry, my apologies to Rex. Um, and so, but you know, we don't get to see that that fight. We don't get to see anything like that. We don't get to see Mukuve in space. Mukuve post you know Zeon leaving Earth, interacting with the Zabi family, uh, could have been a real treat. I don't know. Because you know, the TV show doesn't have time for that. But I, I wonder, you know, would the manga have had time for that? And I'm, I'll just have to wonder that. Yeah, that time was spent with him, like, scheming with Cassilia. And that Probably, stuff's good. Right? Yeah. That stuff's really good. Yeah. That would have been great. I would have loved to see more Cassilia and Mikuve. Where's that Gundam Ace side story? Bondi, Sunrise. Yeah, that brings us to the end. A very dramatic final question there. I'm like the worst person to ask about Makuve takes because like the internet is in love with Makuve. I don't hate Makuve, but I feel like I'm a little cooler than everyone else is. I don't feel like I really have a take on him that much beyond what I just said. People love that dude. Again, not criticizing. I, I guess. I mean, he's he's an effective villain. He he is. Yeah. You know, for for all the questions about you know how how cool is Zeon, no one is confused about TV series Makuve. We know exactly True. what he. He's the guy who pulls out a nuke and says treaties don't matter. You know he <laughs> that's who he is, and he does have some style about him, which helps. Before we like wrap this up officially with promotions and stuff, any quick we're gonna well, trust me, we'll be podcasting about Gundam Origin, the three of us for hours to come. <laughs> but any like final thoughts about the manga? Um, I'll throw it out to both of you. Any, like, final culminating thoughts? It's really good. I am glad. Yeah, I'm glad I read it. It just, it was, if you're, if you are someone who has not read manga before and you were able to access it at a library or, you know, ancient comic walker, you can go back in time or you can get physical copies. uh, I recommend it as someone who has not read a lot of manga or any. Um, Again, like I said, I like it. Go buy it. For me, th- this is the preferred way to consume Origin versus the OVA. Like, just, there's just so much more, and it's so much more fleshed out, and it's so goddamn beautiful. It is an absolute experience. Cosign on both those thoughts. For you know, being a fan of speculative fiction in the year 2022 means that you have to read a lot of prequel stories. Like, I am submerged 24-7 in Star Wars, oh, particularly God. the prequel era, because I'm working through Clone Wars. And just the rewriting and revisions, um, sometimes for the better. Like, when I'm talking about Clone Wars, I'm referring to the TV show. But I also i am a big Star Trek fan, and there's a lot of prequel material with Star Trek. Or really, whatever series you like, I'm sure there's a lot of prequel material. And by and large, Gundam The Origin is the best out of everything I read. I know it's not all, all a one-to-one comparison. Like, how do you compare Gundam The Origin to the Hobbit film adaptations? <laughs> but all the classic prequel mistakes, many of them aren't made in Origin. And if they are, they're not made to the degree of those other sh- properties. I think the OVA differs in that regard because the OVA also doesn't have the benefit of a single storyteller. It also doesn't have the benefit of the entirety of the 12 volumes. It exists in isolation, focusing on the prequel material, which I think is banger material, but I imagine it's difficult for that to stand well on its own. Yeah. I think, yeah, that brings us to the end. Uh, So this is promotions time, baby. Megan, you want to start us off? Hit us with some promotions. Okay, like I said before, if you want... 
Oh, I was just going to say, by the way, we'll all be here together next week talking about the OVA history as well. So sit tight, listeners, because you're in for a lot of origin content from the three of us. Yeah, so uh, if you want to read my manga reviews, that is at mangatestdrive.blogspot.com. If you want to read my uh, longer form essays and reviews and whatnot, that is at renaissancejose.blogspot.com. If you like what I do here or elsewhere enough that you want to give me money for it, you can do so on Patreon at Megan D. I mean, heck, you know, this is not an either-or proposition. You should give money to both my Patreon and the Giant Robot FM Patreon. Very true. Perfect segue there, Megan. PMC. Now, of course, uh, all those links that Megan just mentioned, you will find in the show notes. If you do want to support Giant Robot FM, you can, as, as Megan said, go to patreon.com slash giant robot fm there's a lot of excellent supplemental material that we do uh we have an extra podcast where we talk about what we're up to we give updates about the activity of mecha podcasting itself and we also have a premium series about video games if you couldn't tell i'm interested in video games and we talk about them sometimes <laughs> in a similar format to how we treat mecha anime if you want to support us in other ways uh, we always appreciate uh, ratings and reviewings on your favorite podcatcher services, your iTunes, your Spotify, etc. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics that we use and credits to Fretzel, hashtag band Fretzel, uh, for the music that we use. Anyone have any concluding thoughts and note they want to leave us on? PMC, you're usually good with these final thoughts. I'm going to march into the ocean and explode, Stephen. Stephen. <laughs>